Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Museum of Science, where you can experience the heart of New England, their new giant screen film showcasing this iconic region. You can see it now on the IMAX Dome screen. Tickets at mos.org. Today on BPR Live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library, good news for commuters and people who want affordable housing, bad news for those who are counting on 50,000 jobs. Amazon's second headquarters is not coming to Boston. We open the lines and ask you, are you letting out a sigh of relief, or do you have HQ2 envy? Then it's justice on ice. The NHL reached a settlement in a concussion lawsuit. But with the measly money the players will get, who are the real winners and losers here? Sports Authority Trini Kuznarek joins us on that. And is Brady done at 41? At noon, we'll talk to Sue O'Connell about the midterm election rainbow wave. Boston plans to become home to the controversial Chick-fil-A and the Vatican, telling U.S. bishops to remain inert on the church's sexual abuse crisis. Then we open the lines and ask you if the Catholic Church has lost all moral authority. That's next on Boston Public Radio. Easter Friday, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. It's Tuesday. We are broadcasting live from the WGBH mm-hmm. studio at the Boston Public Library. Mm-hmm. We are. You know what I was thinking today? What were you thinking, Jim? I was thinking... It's raining. Why bother going to work? <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't go anywhere when it's raining, so why should I bother showing up at the uh, library? But then think, I figured, yeah, uh, I might as well. I don't well. think you have as much hairspray on your hair. That maybe. may be it. In any case, it's official, as you just heard on NPR and from Henry. It's going to be a jungle out there, just not here. Amazon has announced it's splitting its second headquarters between Virginia and New York City. Even though Governor Baker and Mayor Walsh lobbied for Amazon to make its second home in Massachusetts come here... Clearly, they did not try as hard as New York's Governor Cuomo, who is willing to go all the way. Anything uh, else I can think of that'll get us over the top, anything they want named Amazon, I'll change my name to Amazon Cuomo if if that's what it takes. Pretty good line. Are you glad we didn't do whatever it takes to bring Amazon here or not? Our number is 877-301-8970. Is this good news for a state and city that's already over-congested with unaffordable housing? Or is this a sign that Boston is never going to be that world-class city, the epicenter of innovation and technology that it longs to be? 877-301-897. You know, when I heard, when this, I guess, was announced, not announced, but when it was reported or yep. leaked yesterday yep. or the day before, I was saying to myself, I can't believe we ever thought we could handle this. You know, Amazon, as you know, ultimately decided to split up the 50000 because yep. the burden was too heavy. But we were attempting to get all 50000 in a city and region where housing is unaffordable. And you and I talk about congestion virtually every single day on the radio. So I have to say, I am not upset oh, me one neither. iota. Me neither. I, I, you know, this, we, why should we be obsessed about being a world-class city? Haven't we beaten the Yankees? Haven't we got pretty good sports teams over the, over the years? Well, we, we are a world-class city. Where's the, where's the quote from Barry Bluestone? Oh, this is great. The Barry Bluestone <laughs> from the Dukakis Center at Northeastern is an economist. And in, a, in a, a Globe story from last year, October, and my apologies, I'm, I can't remember who wrote the Globe piece. Here's what Barry had to say. Unless everyone's going to live on top of the Amazon building, (laughs) we're going to have a serious transportation problem. And there was a great story in the Providence Journal talking about the the median house price in Seattle after Amazon came Mm -hmm. in rose to $730,000, double what it was just five years ago. 
I mean, no one's going to be able to afford to live anywhere in Boston or, in, or near Boston. So why do you think, during, when, when it appeared that we had a really serious chance of being in the mix, and we allegedly made it to the final 20, and I think a lot of people here thought because of the growing yep. tech sector yep. here, uh, obviously the Kendall Square situation in my hometown of Cambridge, that, that it was going to come. Why was there not the same sort of fury like there was when the Olympics debate was happening. The you mean Olympics the fury just, against it or for Yeah, it? the Olympics just would have been three weeks right. of, well, of course, the build-up to three weeks, but ultimately it would have gone away. Uh, well, jobs. Uh, this was a permanent kind of thing. I think that the idea of getting six-figure jobs for 50,000 people was very enticing. But that would have made the housing situation I even know. worse because people could afford decent housing at 100 grand as opposed to whatever the average income is in the city. So... The potential for nightmare here was intense. Obviously, New York City can handle it. It's part of Long Island City and Queens gets half the HQ2 campus, and the other part is somewhere in Virginia, right outside Washington, But, you know, you read this uh, the story that talks about how Cuomo had offered hundreds of millions of dollars in state subsidies, yeah. and he was volunteering to change the name of this Long Island City Creek to the Amazon River to Woo Amazon mm-hmm. as well. Then you find out that this creek... Um, has been designated a Superfund f- site. It's full of PCBs and pesticides and oil and heavy metals. So you wonder, I- I- are they going to fix up this creek out there in, in-, in Queens? With you know, They could give away hundreds of millions of dollars to get the richest guy in the world to come there. Well, excuse Meanwhile, me, when we wooed GE to Boston, what was happening in western Massachusetts? There was still not the resolution fund, the super fund site in, the, there. in the waste. I don't know if it was a super fund, but there were clear, it was the Housatonic or whatever well, it was it's called. it was a polluted. It was very polluted, polluted site, yeah. uh, uh, piece, of, piece of water. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez She's is, out of her mind over this. Yeah, I don't think she's very happy about it, is she? Well, read what she had to say. She tweeted about this thing. Well, she tweets that Amazon's a billion-dollar company. The idea that it will receive hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks at a time when our subway is crumbling and our communities need more investment, not less, is extremely uh, concerning to residents here. She asked if they, has the company promised to hire in the existing community, what are the quality of jobs, how many have promised. It goes on and on and on. She's not happy, obviously, that it's going that it's Most going people there. think, by the way, that if people People are saying out there, what's her involvement? Most people think she represents just the Bronx. She also has a piece of Queens well. Well, Queens, as, as many people who live in New York City know, has become the place that pe- as everything has got, you know, gotten too expensive. Brooklyn's gotten mm-hmm. too expensive. People are moving from Brooklyn to Queens, and it was a little bit uh, less expensive to live in Queens, and now I guess that's all over, too. Well, except what they're saying, which I think is, shows some planning, mm-hmm. is Governor Cuomo is saying for people who are going to be priced out of affordable housing in Queens, they can live in Ohio. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. So, are you mourning uh, uh, the fact that Amazon H, uh, their HQ two? We're not even getting half of it. We're not getting any of it. I think we're doing great on the tech front. I think uh, you know, good riddance kind of thing. I don't think the city could handle this. There's you know, no, there is no evidence. What was the biggest issue in the gubernatorial thing? Transportation traffic and, transportation. and traffic. Yeah, I listen to Joe Matthew every morning giving the, tr- the updates on how long it's going to take you to get into Boston every morning, and I'm so grateful that I don't have to drive that long commute. Remember the other One day? One of the longest had, commutes in the country, by the way. They had the, 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 uh, the big truck that the top came off yeah. in the tunnel, and people were backed up for miles and miles, taking two hours to get into work. I mean, it's absolutely insane, and as we all know, we have not fixed the MBTA. Charlie Baker said before the election, we're going to have to settle for waiting 15 years to fix the T. Uh, well, he didn't say settle. He said there's he didn't a plan settle, but that was <laughs> to, fu- to <laughs> but clear the back off of repairs that's, that's in 15 the deal. years. Wait, yeah. 15 years. We'll see if after the election he uh, follows everyone's advice to take a huge, bold stand and maybe do something dramatic about fixing the MBTA before that. So we're talking about HQ2 for Amazon not coming to town. 
How are you reacting to it? 877-301-897. Let's go to Richard and Taunton. You're first on Boston Public Radio. You morning or celebrating there, Richard? How about Hi, Richard. It? <laughs> well, I want to give you uh, some hometown advice. Sure. Um, we're, uh, by the way, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Thank you oh, thank very you. much for both. Thank you. Which is great. Um, we, um, we're, as we expanded our uh, industrial park in the city of Taunton, um, we were had interest by Amazon warehouse, million square feet, mm-hmm. and another uh, corporate uh, distribution company um, for uh, over 700,000 square feet. Uh, more jobs at Amazon, but more entry-level jobs, yep. more diversified jobs with the uh, other employer. And um, we think we uh, lost a battle for Amazon, but we actually uh, won the battle uh, locally because we have a corporate entity uh, with all the diversification of jobs that comes with that, plus a uh, 100-acre purchaser in our city. So what's the moral, um, Richard, what's so, the moral of the story that could be, could be transferred to places like Boston? What's the Taunton moral? Well, I, I think the moral of, uh, of that is the fact that it, you're better if you grow your own, which Boston has been doing a, a great, uh, you know, success at. Uh-huh. It's also better if you don't put all your eggs in one basket and you get a diversity of jobs for your residents, for the greater yeah. area yeah. and the region. Uh, and that's what we look at down here. And uh, so sometimes uh, going for the uh, low-hanging fruit, as it were, that that great deal may not be the uh, deal that you you would expect. Um, we Got have it. in our region had major warehouse purchases for instance uh, in lease facilities, and then all of a sudden they're gone. Amazon has, uh, uh, as far as I understand, has not purchased the property where they located in the region, but they lease it and uh, multi-year lease, and that's great. They've added a lot of jobs, and that's wonderful. But I, I kind of like the ones that say, hey, we want to buy enough property to expand in the local it. area. Yep. You got it. Yep. Hey, Richard, thank Richard, you thank for you. your first call. By the way, Amazon locating there wouldn't have been that big a problem in the warehouse because they lock all their people in the warehouses <laughs> overnight. So it's well, not that much of a strain. Well, the massive warehouse is in Fall River, my hometown. I know that. As a and when you fact, drive down right. 24 to the city of Fall River, it's amazing. It Can keeps, you see it? It's, it's, yeah, it keeps going and going yeah, and going great. and going. I don't know how big it is, but boy, it is one uh, huge kind of place. You know, Tim Logan wrote this play, wrote a story about uh, 2017 speculating, in yeah, in the Globe, whether uh, Amazon was going to come here, and it talked about how Boston was not only costly, not only congested, full of decaying roads and rail lines, but very cranky. <laughs> that might be a place, a reason why people didn't want to come here or why we were not going to proceed in our bid to get them to come here. By the way, I, I, I want to be clear. Decaying Most of my predictions roads. are totally off base. Yep. I will acknowledge that. But I never thought we had a chance either. Because I mean, think about it. The two greatest concerns, I think it's fair to say, of people who are already here right. is the unaffordability of housing. Yep. And the congestion on the roads and the problems with the tea and the notion that over, what, 10 years we're going to add 50,000 new workers to both of those systems was pretty much preposterous. So, Linda from Salem, thank you for calling. Hi, Linda. Hi there. Um, why would you ever want to build, build on a swamp? And Suffolk Downs is part, it had been part of a swamp. It was. And with uh, sea, sea level rising, all that whole area there. The Belle Isle Marsh uh, going into 
uh, right out into the ocean through Beachmont. Uh, I grew up in the Winterpeace, Boston area. That was all originally marshland before they filled it in and they made the uh, uh, septic downs and things. And with all the talk of the oceans coming up, why would you want to put something that's sea level or below? Well, by the way, Gosh, Linda, I you know, that, know that. But wait, Suffolk Downs was only part of this regional plan. I don't. I. I. I, I think that what Baker and I think Walsh as well and uh, Curtithoni and Somerville didn't we regional. ultimately when we submitted? I think was this multi-city yes. kind of thing. So you might be right about uh, about Suffolk Downs. I don't know enough to know, Linda. But my sense is that was not our only duck in that. Uh, particular thing. Linda, thank you very much uh, for the uh, call. 877-301-8970. Uh, we haven't heard, by the way, we, we checked before we went on the air. I don't think we've heard a comment from either the governor or uh, the mayor yet about whether or not they're disappointed or they're moving on or whatever it is. Brenda and Swampscott, what do you think, Brenda? Hey, Brenda. Hey, um, so I have to commute past Suffolk Downs to come into Boston every mm-hmm. day, and 6 a.m. that traffic's backed up. It can't handle the garbage trucks coming in from the company that's there, and it can't handle a food truck festival. I don't know how it was ever going to handle Amazon. What they do in other places, what they're doing in London is building a new subway line, and the businesses are paying for it. And then it's an investment in the area, and the neighborhoods are growing up around these businesses, and they're paying to get public transportation in here. We pay these companies to come here. We don't do anything about public transportation, and we make life miserable for anybody that doesn't happen to have a job at Amazon. Now, wait till, by the way, in that neighborhood, wait till the casino opens in whatever it's supposed to open in Everett. In Everett, I know. But Brenda, exactly. my recollection was, isn't the New Balance, what's the New Balance stop called near Brighton Landing or whatever? Something like that. Isn't it paid for by New Balance on the commuter rail? I believe in terms of private sector. So some of that has been adapted, uh, adopted here, Brenda, not to mention the fact that I believe that when the Green Line extension ultimately went through Cambridge and Somerville, not private sector, obviously, but not the state, not the federal government, they kicked in some money too. So my sense is the future of this, uh, uh, when and if we do what we need to do here about the T and about roads, there is going to be some private sector involvement. So, Brenda, thank you very much for your uh, call there. Here's Dan. Wait Rod. a second. Here is uh, Walsh on BZ this morning, radio. Boston would have been a great choice for Amazon as far as talent-wise and the culture of our city, says Mayor Walsh. But it looks like they chose two other cities, and that's fine. I wish those two cities well. Uh, on and on like that. Amazon didn't have a presence in Boston five years ago. Right now they have over 1,000 employees working in the city. They have another 2,000 coming. I assume people know that with potentially 2,000 other. Uh, after that, they have a pretty good footprint in the city. I wouldn't say I'm disappointed. Love to have them come here, but I'm excited about the future of our city. We have a great city, which we do. Uh, so Dan says, thank God uh, Amazon isn't coming here. I already worked three jobs to live here. I don't want to also work in an Amazon death camp warehouse in order to keep living here. Well, this was not a warehouse, by the way. I mean, this was not, it was not a, a warehouse. warehouse but, yeah. the, but we have learned a lot about the uh, warehouses, and it's not good stuff. Massachusetts needs to fix its transit. And by the way, the $15 a, a, an hour prices, at, uh, the wages at Amazon, that seems to be kind of a hazy thing, too, because there's a lot of cutbacks and benefits. So it didn't seem ne- necessarily be the win that it was presented uh, as being at the Yeah, beginning. we discussed that, I think, with Nancy Kane a couple yeah. of weeks ago. I mean, I mean, that's a really important thing. There was celebration by a bunch of people, including us. And by the way, Bernie Sanders, until he delved more deeply into this, 
The good news was wages, were, as you say, were up to yeah. $15 an hour for, I think, 300,000 workers, if I remember correctly. But the bad news is you say a lot of perks, not the perk is a pejorative, uh, uh, well, benefits and benefits were going to disappear. Exactly. So the net income for a lot of Amazon workers would actually have Go gone down. down. Rather than, uh, well, how else can Bezos make quarter billion yeah. a day? Which well, you is say what all the doing. time, there's really something really, uh, you know, makes us look like a bunch of suckers. What do you mean? That taxpayers in the United States are willing to subsidize these companies with government benefits, taxpayer mm -hmm. benefits, because they don't pay their workers enough to earn a living wage. I mean, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? We no, and by the way, and then the same people, we've had this discussion before, the same uh, uh, voters who go nuts over the fact that somebody wants to raise the minimum wage right. to a living wage of $15, either doesn't understand or chooses to ignore the fact that if you don't, because they're concerned that consumer prices are going to go up, yep. they're paying additional tax dollars, as you say, to subsidize government benefits for these workers who are being underpaid at the Walmarts and other kinds of places. Our number is 877-301-8970. We're talking about uh, Amazon. Uh, it is not coming here with their big uh, new headquarters and the six-figure jobs. It's going to a section of Queens in New York City and a place outside of Washington and Virginia. No one seems terribly disappointed yet. Maybe we'll find we some, <laughs> someone who is. Brian from Lynn, what do you think? Hi, Brian. So, you know, I'm, I'm a first-time caller. I've been listening for a while. I appreciate yep. what you guys think of the radio waves. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thanks. So, I don't know how seriously it was considered, but it was at least at least briefly mentioned that possibly Worcester would be prospective for the headquarters and just wanted to talk about, you know, what, what it could have done for that part of the Commonwealth versus the city where obviously we can't really handle it. And what's your, finish your own sentence. You think that would have been a huge asset down there or what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for a part of the state that's trying to become more progressive and really needs some, some catalyst to it, it could have been a huge help. Well, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You probably know this, Brian and, or Marjorie. My recollection is that Governor Baker did not endorse any of the bids from different locations, but rather embraced all of them uh, because he wanted to leave his options open because I, I guess his position, I hope I'm stating it correctly, was as long as Massachusetts gets it, whichever part right. of Massachusetts they choose. I don't remember. That would be fine, truth. but I, I don't know. Brian, thank you for the call and thank you for your first call. But he makes a really good point. I mean, there are parts of the state that obviously could have not only used it more and needed it more, uh, and Worcester probably would have been in that category, but it's not coming to town. We're talking about Amazon, how HQ2 is not coming to Massachusetts. Do you care? Are you disappointed? Or not. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie, and we're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Amazon not coming to Massachusetts. Are you relieved? Do you feel dissed? Does the prospect of the 50,000 jobs that could have been ours seem like a huge opportunity lost? Would this have been the incentive we needed to modernize the T? I mean, that was the argument made behind whatever mm -hmm. it was, Boston 2024. Right. It was going to provide that the impetus to do this thing. Yeah, I mean... It did. You know, uh, and, and, you know, the question is, 
Well, I don't know what the... I mean, uh, Here's a question, Jim. Are, do you feel insulted? Are you dissed? Do you feel less respected because Amazon has rejected Boston? Are you holding up well as a citizen of Cambridge? I do feel enough? disrespected you and do. dissed. Yes, I do. By virtually everything. Okay. 877, but not by Amazon. 301 <laughs> Uh, Eighty-nine, seventy. By the way, I, I never heard a, a credible argument made, and I mean this respectfully, by the governor or the mayor as to how we could accommodate uh, 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 Amazon in this place, in this uh, community. And again, it, we can't accommodate what we currently have. No, we can't. And unless there was a serious game plan as to how we were going to do it, uh, it was I mean, a people, bad choice people for us. People down at the seaport, which is where the Amazon office in Boston is located, yeah. down in the seaport district, talk all the time about trying to get out of there at the end of the day. You see these pictures on, on online of like this endless traffic jam. Yeah, but that also is not going to be a problem because soon it's going to be underwater. Well, it is going to be underwater. So they can underwater. row out, actually, You know, with this terrible tragedy in climate change, and by the way, you had a great show last night with the former EPA director about Gina these terrible McCarthy wildfires out in California. Thank you. It is heartening to see that people are finally talking about how climate change is involved with this, that the, the, the fires are that have long plagued California, but they're much more lethal now. They're much more widespread, bigger, more powerful, and more common. By the way, one of the reasons why people, when, some people were uh, uh, befuddled by the fact that in the middle of a tragedy, where now is, I think it's up to 44 people are dead and yeah, close to 100 missing, missing, why would even President Trump send out that grotesque ta- tweet about gross mismanagement? It's Many people believe it's because he wanted to preempt a discussion about climate, climate change, change, which, of course, he does not believe in, and rather focus. And, you know, I didn't know until uh, Gina McCarthy was coming on last night. Again, Obama's head of the EPA. She's now at the uh, Chan School of Public Health at uh, Harvard doing, I think, wonderful work there. Sixty percent of the forest land in California is owned by the federal government. Sixty percent. So while Trump, uh, the president, is trashing the gross mismanagement, if that were to be true, which most people say it is not, one would argue he is trashing himself and the the cuts that in funding that the feds have done to their own uh, forest land. We're talking about Amazon not coming to uh, Massachusetts. Do you feel dissed? Are you thrilled? Let's go to Diane in New Bedford. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks so much for calling. Hi. Hi. Um, I just uh, two points. My son worked at the Freetown Amazon Center, yeah. and they were treated miserably. And there was even talk of bringing the union in because they're being treated so miserably. Um, and then, as far as the fifteen dollars an hour, people have to remember that's going to be over time. That's not an automatic boom. It's going to take a couple of years, and by then, everything else would have gone up in price. So it's not going to be a living wage. Well, but Diane, if so. they—I mean, by the way, the increase in minimum wage in Massachusetts is also over a time. The deal that was struck a couple of years ago—that in itself is fine, in my opinion. Phasing it in, the issue is what was lost by those workers, and as Marjorie said a couple of minutes ago. If you read between the lines, there were lots of benefits that the workers are currently uh, experiencing that were going to disappear in return for this wage increase, so that for many of them, as we say, it was a net loss. Hey, By Diane, the way, I didn't hear Diane, the... Be- I'm before sorry. you go, yeah. why, what do you mean? Give us an example of his miserable treatment. What sort of stuff? Your kid. Well, um, things about, uh, you know, uh, your break time being cut short. Um, just the whole sense of being practically frisked when you're going in and out. I don't know. He had a long list. He's not with me, or he would tell you himself. Okay, okay. But, um, okay. yeah, so... 
That's just in general, but I know there was also talk about bringing in the union. Yeah. SEIU, the employment, you, uh, you know, service, service employees. Service employees, yeah. So. Yeah. Diane, Diane thank you very much for the call. Lori in South Dartmouth. Hi, Lori. Hi, Lori. Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, this, this Amazon thing is another major distraction from the, the on-the-ground problems of transportation in Boston and environs. I'm calling from South Dartmouth where I'm next door to New Bedford, which is so underappreciated. It's having a, an incredible renaissance of, of arts and culture and music and innovation and all kinds of things. And we're waiting. It's a joke here about the, the rail. When is the rail coming? When is the railroad coming? We, our, the public transportation in this corridor is horrifying. Yeah. So are the highways. They're very antiquated. It's like a terror thing when you have to get on and off one of those entries and you don't know who's going to slow down. Is it me or is it the other car or are we going to end up in a heap? I was over in Albany with a friend taking her to Albany Medical Center and the highways were like something from a futuristic, you know, utopia there. Wide, broad highways with, with logical, safe entries. Hey, Lori, really? do you know one place that is not uh, uh, giving short shrift to the advances in New Bedford? Is us. I don't know if you were listening last week when the mayor joined us uh, 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 and talking about some of the wonderful things that are happening there. And by the way, Lori, when you mentioned uh, uh, transportation, how many governors in a row have promised, and legislatures, have promised South Coast Rail to become a reality to make uh, the commute easier for people in your neck of the woods, Lori? And uh, this governor has promised it too, and we'll see. If it's honored, thanks so much for the uh, call. 877-301-8970. Before you ask me to read the great quote from Barry Bluestone, (laughs) who's the economist, unless everyone's going to live on top of the Amazon building, we're going to have a serious transportation problem, meaning had we gotten it. Barry Bluestone is the same one who told us. Remember you came out with a report a couple of years ago that by, what is it, 10 years from now, based upon if we don't do more than is already planned for the roads in Boston, that 93 was essentially going to come to a total a standstill, standstill good. in whatever it is, five, ten work. years or something uh, uh, like that. You know what is amazing to me that people don't demand more from our government, you know? Uh, well, it, I, you know, I, I think Baker's been saying that he's been spending a lot more money. He's investing $8 billion, getting new uh, train cars and doing more than anybody's years, yeah. done and all that. But, but I do think it, it just seems as... I mean, we've said this a million times. The T did not seem to be such a disaster uh, 15 years well, ago. Well, also, can I correct you? Uh, not correct you, but uh, uh, something you. You're making the same mistake Jay Gonzalez does. Baker is not the only game in town. There are enough Democrats. If the Democrats are so concerned about the transportation crisis in this state, then the answer is pass a transportation plan. And if the governor doesn't like it and vetoes it, then override yeah. his vetoes. You have the votes. They get those great per diems up at the state house. Maybe that's they why do. they don't. Yeah, they get paid mileage. You know when they're not getting per diems? When they're now, on. because they're on a five-month <laughs> vacation. I mean, by the way, do you feel, I mean, whether it's the education stuff, the health care bill that failed, the transportation crisis in the state, how can they defend five months off? How can they defend that? Well, I think it's indefensible, Jim. Oh, thank you. Okay, we're in agreement on that. Next. Joe in Fall River. Hi, Hi Joe. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. Hey, what's up? How big is that uh, warehouse down there, Joe? It's enormous. I've never seen a building so big in my life. It never ends. Well, it's a mil- yeah, it's a million square feet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and actually, uh, it's, 
it's on, on uh, 300 acres of a, what was supposed to be a bioscience park. Oh. Uh, and and uh, as you know, you know, we both had Miss Burns for English. Oh my goodness! Yes, we did. Oh my God! She's a great teacher. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I was yes, the, the best I ever had. However, uh, the the uh, what you need to look up is the nine-page article that was done by the New York Times about how Amazon treats its workers and what they have uh, those workers do to one another. The city of Fall River, as most of you well know, is always in financial distress. Yeah. So how do we how how do we actually justify giving Amazon, uh, which is I, I I'm not sure, but is the richest one of the richest companies in the world, uh, a 15 year tip? Well, there the theory, uh, Joe. Let me just say the theory is I'm not embracing this is the upfront investment by governments. Uh, if Andrew Cuomo was here, he would probably say will be returned and then some uh, down the line. I, I think it's a losing proposition and uh, for these states to be bidding against each other. So I'm with you, but that's what the theory is. Hey, Joe, before you go, you mentioned you had Miss Burns, uh, with, uh, as did Marjorie. Did you have Miss Crispo, the living fossil, who Marjorie has mentioned <laughs> regularly too, or not? Uh, I, I, I have to say, in, in full disclosure, yeah. I, I was kept after school in detention by Miss Crispo. <laughs> Joe, we love you. There you go. What did Miss Crispo, Crispo, the living fossil, what did she teach? Uh, she, t- she taught health. Uh, she taught health education, sex education. We didn't call it sex education. That was health. And she told you that you better not take a bath after your father or your brother because there could be rogue sperm in the bathtub. I remember that very that well. That might impregnate you. We were all terrified. You know, th- th- Thank there's you this, for your there's this um, uh, tweet we've got here about uh, Amazon, what they spent in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, what the, not what they, what when the government's Virginia given spent. them, yeah. Yeah. $573 million in direct taxpayer money. $550 million from Virginia, $23 million from Arlington, Virginia, over 15 years. And uh, they've also promised $195 million in Arlington, $28 million in transportation, parking infrastructure. You, know, you just wonder how much of this could have been gone per, to schools or to roads me, Do you know that per things? capita, that is a far smaller amount than Massachusetts and Boston invested in GE? How many employees, GE, was this for? 800 or 1,000? I don't know. I don't and know. it was 150 million in infrastructure and tax breaks between the city and the state. This is only four times as much, and there are 50 times as many, 25 times as many workers but I, coming. I, but I guess the question is. I'm not is, defending it. Well, I'm, I guess that's the question. The question is is this worth it? Is this worth it when we're talking all the time about school systems like Brockton where the kids... Well, obviously government know, officials say it is. I don't, I, I'm with you. I don't see the returns. It's sort of a race to the bottom. You bid against the other states and cities and everybody loses. And here then you have a guy like Bezos, the richest guy in the Making world, treating his workers million a day. terribly, and we're all like groveling to get uh, him to come here. But anyway, we are moving on. We are moving Up, on. You know why? Because there's no, a sports bra brouhaha, there Jim, is. and we're going to get to the bottom of it with our sports authority, Trenny Kuznarek. She is next to talk about another example of sexism on the playing field, Trenny Kuznarek's Trenny Kuznarek, that is, 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan, live at our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Now that the midterm election agony is beyond us, we have something to fill that void. Tom Brady. After Sunday shellacking with the Titans beating the Patriots 34 to 10, everyone's coming to the realization yet again that Tom Brady is 41. So is it time for us to power through the five stages of grief and get to acceptance already, <laughs> or will Tom beat time spectacularly once again? Joining us for our take on this and other sports headlines is Trini Kuznarek. Trini's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. And a BPR contributor. Hello, Trini Kuznarek. Hi, guys. Hi. Well, before we get any further, we want to play Trini from her podcast yesterday, who asked this question. What have you seen from Tom Brady, not just yesterday, but overall this year, that, you know, I guess is leading a lot of us to ask these questions of, is Tom Brady not the same guy we've seen before? Which, by the way, I should point out, would be natural and normal. So giving up the tomatoes and the mushrooms or whatever else he gives up in that diet of his is, is not extending him well, infinitum or what? I mean, father time is undefeated, right? <laughs> that's, that's the old saying. I mean, here's the, here's the thing. T- Tom Brady not being at Tom Brady levels is still better than most of the quarterbacks in the NFL. But I find it funny that... You know, we've sort of, and, and I understand the apprehension to say, okay, he, he started to hit the slow decline because we've said this before about him and then he does something miraculous and unbelievable and we can't believe that at, at 38 or 39 or 40 that he's still doing things. But if you realistically and with an objective eye begin to look back at Tom Brady, this, de- this slight dip in performance, I wouldn't even call it a decline, a slight dip in performance dates back to last December. Last December, we had conversations about his numbers going down. It, his completion percentage was struggling. The number of touchdowns were fewer. The interceptions were up. Then he doesn't go to his off-season workouts. And in the beginning of this year, everyone says, oh, we didn't go to off-season workouts. That's why he's struggling out of the gate a little bit. That's why they started one and two. Well, now we're into November. So, for, you know, love my colleagues, but a number of them say, well, I keep pointing to the fact that, you know, now he should know better. He should go to those off-season workouts. Well, at what point? You're in November. You've been playing football now all through training camp for three or four weeks, for four weeks of the preseason, and you're week. They've played 10 games. So I'm sorry, but at some point you have to look at it and say, okay, maybe Tom Brady is beginning to feel the effects of playing football for the last 25 years, if you go back to Pop Warner, you know, when he probably played as a kid. I, I just think, and I think that's okay. It's just like, Fans, you got to accept it, man. The guy is not, he's not invincible. He's not going to play until he's 50. He's probably not even going to play until he's 45. And if he does do that, it's not going to be effective. He's not going to be a starter. And that's all right. So, that's okay. Well, you so, look like you're in agony. Well, Marjorie. I guess the question is, what does this mean? Does this, this certainly doesn't mean he has to, that they need to replace Tom no. Brady. But from what I read in preparation for your coming here today, that he's got to be upright. That when he keeps getting sacked, as he, I guess he was sacked multiple times, three times uh, this, this past game. Three, yes, three times. And, and they say he was pressured six, but when they look at the all 22, all these you know, sportsy that numbers, is, that, that number will probably go up. That his arm may still be good, but his legs are getting wobbly. Is this a consensus? Well, yeah, and, and to be honest, like the arm strength isn't quite there than what it used to be. The accuracy isn't there. And I, again, I don't want to get too, I know this audience is a little different than the one we have at NBC Sports. So, but I watched some film that NFL films broke down, and he's doing a thing where he's turning his shoulder 
shoulder a little differently, so he's putting more effort, and so his throws are a little off target, and part of that is because he's feeling the pressure. There's all these little things that go into it, but at the end of the day, and I said this yesterday on Early Edition with Gary Tangway, I said, shame on the Patriots for not putting a better supporting cast around him. You have, you have, you have asked Tom Brady to carry this team no matter what position players you put around him, what skill players you put around him for eight, for the better, again, for the better part of 18 years, you take out 2007 when they went undefeated and they had, you know, you know, they brought in Randy Moss and I, you know, I always remember him, but I sort of forget. I think uh, Wes Welker was there and um, Troy Brown, I think was still on the team. So you have all these amazing players. And since that point, it's been a lot of these role players, lower drafted guys. They don't sign high priced free agents. And so it's like, hey, Tom Brady at 41 years old, can you carry this team again? No, you can't carry the team again. Put some defensive players there so that, like how they do with Peyton Manning, his final years in in Denver. Peyton Manning didn't win that Super Bowl for Denver. The defense did, but you owe it to Tom Brady to do that. I want to hear, but when you broke down the film, Marjorie, what did you find in terms of the body movement? In fairness, I did not. I just watched somebody else do it. I want to hear when Marjorie broke it down. I just did notice there was a certain move in his (laughs) left ankle, I thought, that was very indicative of probably... Trouble down the road. <laughs> See? See? You know, Marjorie's, the sense pick, I got, Marjorie's picking up on it, Jim, we know it's now, bad. Let me yeah. be clear about this. Well, I don't, I, I don't have a close personal relationship with Tom Brady. I did shake his hand once, as we know, and did not so watch it off on for him. months. But the sense <laughs> I get from afar is, well, a lot of guys... You know, there's a Sandy Koufax. For those who are not young enough, one of the greatest pitchers of all time for the Dodgers, retired in his prime at like 31 or some such thing. Uh, you get the sense from afar that... that Tom Brady, as competitive as he is, does not want to be a second-tier kind of player. You disagree with that? No, I don't. I also, I thought where I thought you were going is that uh, part of me doesn't see the same fire in him this year as we've seen before. I mean, he sat the last seven minutes of the fourth quarter. Which they never do, even if they have a huge lead. Which they never do with him. And, and, you know, good on them for doing it because you don't want him out there because God forbid that he takes a hit that he can't get up from. Then your season is completely tanked. You need him to even have a shot at going through the, the postseason and getting to the Super Bowl. But there is, to me, there's something. There was one instance where we saw him really yelling and rallying the troops on the south sidelines. But other than that, I just, I, I sort, I wonder, and again, I wouldn't blame him, but at 41 years old, when you've been doing this for a long time and your body is beaten down and your tight end was almost traded away and now he's injured and your wide receiver, who's also your best friend, got popped for doing, you know, PEDs and you've, you've been what in a spat PEDs? with uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Oh, okay. Um, you know, we do you, those too, actually, yeah, for we radio do. performance They've purposes. Worked, they haven't <laughs> worked that well for me. No, they work really for none of us. Um, <laughs> And then you know your head coach. You've been you've been you've been sparring with your head coach, and that 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 relationship has soured. Where he, you know you have and Giselle to, wants him to retire. And Giselle right? wants him to retire, and you've got your kids, and you've got other ventures and things and things going on. Like I, 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 I empathize with him, and yeah. I'm usually sort well, of in the heart. Because you're 41, on, isn't that part of the reason you're empathizing? Oh, she's not 41. I am. Yeah. No, oh, I thought she you were 40. Oh no, I am. I am. Okay. I am actually. Three months older than one Ooh, Thomas okay. Edward Patrick. By the way, we don't have more time for this, but at two o'clock in the library, Marjorie will be breaking down the film. <laughs> yes, in I will. the newsfeed. She has to pull up the NFL so All Twenty Two. I want to move on to this this great story. We're talking to Trent Kuznick, by the way, about this uh, this cross country team in New Jersey, the Rowan. I had not heard of this. School. I knew you heard of this school either. Yeah, but the uh, the the track 
young women are out there running in their sports bras. God forbid. And all hell breaks loose. So here's the backstory. <laughs> Rowan University is Division Three University. Their track is outside of, like many smaller schools, mm-hmm. their track, uh, the football field is encircled by the track. Yes. So the cross-country team works out on the track. Apparently it had been a little bit of a power struggle between the cross-country team and the football players because the head football coach was like, oh, these ladies who are running, they're distracting my football players. So one day, it's 69 degrees, which I, you know, uh, giggle, giggle, it was 69 degrees and they took their shirts off. Um, So they take their, it doesn't seem warm, but for runners, 69 degrees is actually quite warm. And if there's any humidity, you want the least amount of clothing on your body as possible. So the men take off their shirts, the women take off their shirts, and the women have sports bras on. Big deal. Who cares? They run in the marathon sports bras, right? Exactly. The elite runners use what we call singlets. They're very short little half shirts and then tiny little like, you know, basically bikini bottom shorts. You want to run. If you're an elite athlete, you want the least amount of drag and clothing on on you as possible. So what happens next day, they come to practice and suddenly the athletic department says, yeah, you guys can't practice here. You have to go to the high school and practice now. And it turns out that at the end of the day, two things stuck out to me when I sent this story to Chelsea. One, it's just another indication of football being the be-all, end-all power. No matter, and this is a Division Even three in school. Division th- this exactly, isn't Division right, One. Right. This school isn't. This team isn't bringing in billions of dollars like, say, a University of Alabama is for the institution. This is some Division Three school where they can't even give scholarships to their athletes, not athletic scholarships. Mm-hmm. So now these men and women have to move their practice, and the the I guess the athletic department said, "Well, you can practice after when the football team is over." And they're like, "Well, hey, our." Kids got to study, too. We don't want them to practice late at night. But the other thing was, and many of the women, and this is how this story got some publicity, is a woman had written, one of the track athletes, had written an article for, for Odyssey, which is a, a sports blog or something, and it picked up some steam. But she said at the end of the day, he, his biggest issue was, my men can't concentrate when there are are good-looking athletic women running around in sports bras. And she said, and I loved it, it was a, it was a great point. She said, these guys are wearing tight pants. She said, maybe he should run his practices better because we're focused on what we should be doing. We're not looking at a bunch of guys in really tight pants. Marjorie they is, shouldn't be looking not. at us. No, but I'm that's not. a great point. Like this idea that somehow men can't possibly be expected to focus if there's an attractive woman with a nice figure near them is absurd. It's, and it's so... Well, it's by the way, so it may be true, but the fact, archaic. even if it were true, do you remember, Marjorie, we had this big... Remember in the Herald did this cover story when you used to work there before they uh, cut your health insurance there on a Friday <laughs> afternoon when you uh, retired after 30 years. Uh, but putting that aside, do you remember when the women, what are the name of the, you're the Olympic broadcaster, what are the name of those two women in volleyball who were the all-time champions? Oh, Carrie One, Walsh and Misty May. Right, when all those, remember when they competed in Quincy? Oh, yeah. And they sold out 5,000 tickets <laughs> in about 30 seconds and the men's Olympic team competed like the next week and nobody nobody went now why do you think that was because they were bikinis exactly thank you very much i'm not defending i'm not defending the coaches you are a men are dogs you are a simple gender a very simple gender but they look spectacular in their bikinis and they were great athletes what the heck right what the heck so we were just talking about how uh, no one seemed very upset in our previous segment that Amazon is not coming here with all their jobs and, and the 50,000 more people and stuff like this. Um, this was the same kind of reaction a lot of people here had to the, had to the Olympics. But I guess they're getting thumbs down all, all over, over the, the world place. now. So what's going on? Norway? 
Norway Austria? said no. Switzerland was it Switzerland or Sweden? I always get those two mixed up. Uh, Switzerland. <laughs> Switzerland. They're Switzerland. not the same yes, though. Yep. Switzerland. I believe it was wanna. Switzerland. Yep. So Calgary, which in uh, Alberta, Canada, uh, held the 1988 Olympics, and they have been approached by the International Olympic Committee. Um, and this whole this piece done by this this the I don't know who the journalist is who did Michael the piece. Powell, Michael Powell, New York Times, uh, from the New York Times, great piece. Um, really dives deep into because what, sometimes when I hear these things and. Full disclosure, I work for NBC. We have the rights to the Olympics. I worked the last three Olympics for the mothership for NBC. And your t- curling team won the gold and medal? Curl- well, not my. It's not her curling yes, team. Yes, but well, the, the, the curling team, team won the gold medal. Um, so I have an affinity for the Olympics. I like working the Olympics. But there's also a social issue that I look at. You know, when we go to Rio and I'm walking to my venue and I see one single tower left standing of a favela, and I say, what, you know, what is this? Why is this still here? All the other ones are gone. And, you know, somebody says, well, those were the one, the, the one family that refused to leave. And they basically are squatters. But they leveled, an, you know, yes, favelas. So they're, they're a slum in Rio de Janeiro. But this is where people lived and made their homes. And they're in poverty for a reason. And there's no place for them to go. The same thing in Sochi. When, when we were in Sochi, everyone was the whole, uh, this, there was this huge focus. And it really, and I'm a, I, I love animals. I love dogs. But, okay, not true. I hate animals. I'm terrified of them, but I love dogs. <laughs> there was this big discussion about how all these stray dogs are running around um, Sochi. And they were executing them, which is sad and terrible and awful. But I was like, does anybody want to know why there's all these stray dogs running around? They're running around because they pushed families mm-hmm. so quickly out of the area so that they could level their homes and put up in some places. I don't know if I've ever showed you guys the pictures, but fake buildings with just facades of um, brick and mortar around them. So they're actually they're, they're just shells of buildings and then building up hotels and an amusement park and this place for Vladimir Putin to go and all of these arenas and rinks that they hardly ever use again. So these dogs were the household pets of people uh. who were displaced because of the Olympics. So there are serious social issues and economic issues to hosting an Olympics. And the problem is that the IOC goes in and says, it's not going to cost you that much, Calgary. You already have the infrastructure in place, right? Like, that's what they said here in Boston. That's what they're saying in Los Angeles. But it always ends up costing more. In this article, it said that the London Olympics, a city that is economically stable, it still costs them 73% more than the initial estimates. Well, you know, a guy who was a regular guest on our show during this, when uh, Boston 2024 were here, the international expert on the financing of Olympics and World Cups is Andrew Zimbalist from Smith College. Yep. And he teamed up now with Chris Dempsey, who led uh, No on Boston 2024. They're traveling the world. Uh, urging people to be very careful, not just about the human cost, but the economic cost. Right. With the exception of Los Angeles, I think I'm quite sure I'm right about this. Every Olympic Games in recent history has been a big money loser, way over budget. And the only reason Los Angeles was not is the Olympic Committee was so desperate, the uh, International Olympic Committee, that they cut a deal with Los Angeles that they wouldn't cut with Boston, saying that we will guarantee that we, the Olympic Committee, not the taxpayers of Los Angeles, will foot the bill for any overage. And the venues were left over from a previous Olympics, which is a big thing, too, So the bottom line is, you should read Zimbalist's work. (laughs) Andrew Zimbalist, Google him. These are losing financial propositions, not to mention the human cost. And in the situation here, by the way, ordinarily, I mean, in years gone by, everybody's bidding now, as you said, the IOC is going to Calgary. Calgary's not going to them, right. basically, because they're desperate. And, and maybe this course corrects things, because the IOC, much like FIFA, 
I mean, it's this multi-billion dollar organization, and FIFA is, but they also pay their athletes. But you have to remember, Olympic athletes are amateur athletes. Yeah. They can't even sign. There are very strict rules in certain sports about, like for the kids that are still in college. Now it's changed a little bit that you can have endorsements and make money. You know, you can be sponsored um, and actually make your own money. But it's not like you're, most of these events, you don't, you don't make a lot of money curling. You know, to use curling as an example, all the guys I covered have regular nine to five daytime jobs that allow them to travel. Now, the, when you win a gold medal, like the men, did they're traveling a lot more they're doing more they're getting endorsements so there's other ways for them to financially support themselves but for many of these olympic athletes there are very few sean whites yeah there are very few michael phelps there are very few chloe kims or lindsey vons who are millionaires because of their endorsement deals Mm -hmm. most of these athletes that you're watching in both the winter and the summer games primarily in the smaller sports I mean, even the gymnasts, because uh, many of them are so young that they haven't signed endorsement deals yet, and they have a, a, a goal of still going to college and maybe competing at the collegiate level, they don't make money. They're, they're doing it for the love of the sport. So there has to be, you know, does the, does the, you know, do the members of the IOC need to stay in, like, the presidential suite at every hotel? No. Uh, trust me, the hotels at the Olympics are nice. You can get a regular room. And there's also a serious history of corruption, uh, both in FIFA, yes. World Cup governing body, and the IOC. Especially in Russia and, yeah. and Soviet Union. Uh, uh, yes, Trinity Kuznirik, we have a story here from The Guardian about a Went back to woman, 1987 there for a second. A, Soviet Union. A San Francisco 49ers cheerleader who took a knee in the game against the Oakland Raiders. And, and, um, but what I was really interested in is the follow-up to these uh, young women, the cheerleaders at Georgia State University, uh, they did this a year ago for um, five of the cheerleaders there, and four of the five were asked not to come back on the team. And because one of them, they took a knee? Mm-hmm. Apparently, I didn't know that, really. And one of them has filed a lawsuit uh, claiming the college violated her civil rights. I did not know about I that. I actually didn't either because it doesn't, you know, they're cheerleaders, right? Yeah. Uh, they're women, so it doesn't get as much press. Um, I actually hadn't even heard about the Niners cheerleader until Chelsea forwarded mm. the story to me. Um, not, not much talk about the protest or the reaction to it in this story, but, um, but she did do it. She did do it. Um, somebody who was in an end zone, you know, took a, a picture on their, on their phone and, and uploaded it and tweeted it, and then it gained some traction. Um, but this is what happens, right? Uh, again, um, you know, if you are not a money-making athlete, if you are not a maybe women's basketball, basically you'd have to be a women's basketball player at a high-profile school, I think, to probably not find yourself in some sort of trouble. Yeah. Um, for taking a knee. I hope, I, you know, it's I don't... It's pretty courageous of these college uh, cheerleaders to do this, it you seems know, to me. Can it's I, courageous for the... You know, you don't get paid squat no, at the pro no. level. And but they lost woman, their position. But this woman, she clearly does it because she loves it and she enjoys it. And to do that, you're putting yourself out there. And once she's identified, you know what happens to people who take any sort of stance on something that's controversial, your life is turned upside down. Yeah. So for this one woman to do it at a, at a pro game, um, even in a very liberal town, once her name is out there, God help her for what people will dig out. You know, Trini, we only have a minute left. Is any, uh, I should know this, are any NFL players I, taking a knee you know, halfway I, into um, the season? Oh, um, the safety, um, the safety of who was ended up signing with Carolina, um, Reed, Eric Reed. Thank yeah. you. Eric Reed. Um, One player I, I believe in the he whole is, league? I don't know if there's anybody else right now, it, it, either that, or it's just a story that for whatever reason, 
the journalists at the game are choosing not yeah. to cover in spotlight. But I have to imagine that there are enough national sort of left-leaning reporters of these games so that they would draw some attention or to. Or right-leaning reporters who want to focus on the That's true, who want to focus that, on yeah. it, yeah. Trinity Kuznarek, thank you very much. We are out of time. We didn't get to all our stories. Oh, That's well. Okay. We got to sports But Trinity joins us every week. That is. I mean, I know more. <laughs> that was a great old. story. It was a great story. Trinity is an anchor and reporter for NBC yes, Sports is. Boston, a BPR contributor, and the podcast. What's the name of the podcast? Oh, so it's uh, the breakfast pod. They just take stuff from our show from the night before. Okay. And throw all right. It up. Well, she's got a podcast. Well, too. I'm not going <laughs> to pretend I do any extra work. <laughs> Trinity, thank you very much. Good to see you. Coming up, Chick fil A, famous for its fried chicken sandwiches and its opposition to gay marriage is coming to Boston like right next to us, Jim. Should the city push back? Sue O'Connell joins us for that and more. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Noon on Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Who is Pope Francis to judge his own church? That's a message he's sending by telling U.S. bishops not to vote on proposals that would tackle the church's sexual abuse crisis. Sue O'Connell joins us for this and other headlines, and we open the lines and ask you, where is the moral authority? If you're Catholic, do you still have faith in your faith? A photographer and social worker traveled the U.S. to capture what it means to be transgender after 50, and they defied every stereotype along the way. We talked to them about that, which is the subject of their new book. And CNN's John King joins us to talk about Trump and the latest cabinet member rumored to go, Homeland Security head Kristen Nielsen. Then Harvard historian Nancy Kane is here. We'll ask her if democracy is any safer today than it was when Woodrow Wilson entered the Great War to protect it. That's next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. It is Tuesday. We are broadcasting live, as we mm-hmm. do every Tuesday, from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Hello again, Jim. You're eating a Marjorie. Is that not I'm correct? I'm Marjorie. The it's what delicious. is a Marjorie again? What is that again? It's turkey, uh, lettuce, tomato, Ooh. onions, it's really, and cheese. Ooh. It's really good. Very it's really good. But I, I shouldn't have taken that bite. I, I Oh, anyway, well, I mean, I'm on the radio. It is totally unprofessional, <laughs> unprofessional. But in any case, joining us to go over the social norms and abnormalities of the day is media maven Sue O'Connell. Sue is the co-publisher. Don't forget the co. The co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News and a BPR regular. Hello there, Sue hello, O'Connell. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, you know, before we even get to our topic, I just realize you're like a big Bostonian. How do you feel about Amazon not coming here? 
I, I um, Jesse Mermel had a great piece today in Boston Business Journal. Based, oh, I didn't see it. It's, it's brilliant, and I direct everyone to it. She um, runs a progr- I mean, she's worked for Deval Patrick, but she runs a progressive business group. Yeah, a business not, group, yeah, yeah. right? And and she basically says, uh, you know, we need to love our. It's like dating advice. Before you can go out and get a good date, <laughs> you have to love you need yourself. To love yourself first, and Boston oh, really needs good. to love. I'm mixed about it. I mean, I. I I share all of the the progressive concerns and and sort of the business community hopes about having someone. You had a caller in earlier. I'm from the Revere area. I lived half a mile away from Suffolk Downs. Mm -hmm. It is a marsh. It's part of the Bell Marsh area. I didn't know that. I can't believe I I was such a dope about that. Well, it's, you know, we, we grow up in the area with, you know, buildings like here we are on the back bay. I was just going to say, right, exactly. Um, So I don't know how I feel about it. I'm glad I asked that. That's my, my mix. I mean, I, okay. I, I sit in traffic now and wonder how much worse would it be with 50,000 people in the area. And then I think about not just Boston, but Revere and Everett and Medford, Lynn. You know, if the Amazon went to Suffolk Downs, how helpful would it be for those cities, not just Boston? So I don't well, know. Well, can I commend you for coming down firmly on both sides of the issue? I, <laughs> well, no, I'm serious. That's fabulous. I'm going to give her an easier one. What's okay, a, go ahead. Sue O'Connell. Yes. Irish Catholic. That's me. Raised. How, how's the Catholic Church doing these days? As everybody oh, knows. Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. The bishops were in Baltimore yesterday. They were supposed to have a, a vote on holding themselves accountable. They have not been accountable. The Globe did that devastating piece of reporting last week. 130 bishops, I think it's one-fifth one of the bishops. One-third. One-third. In the United States have been either involved in sex abuse themselves or covering it up. And many of those, I believe 50 of those, Jim Browdy, are post-2002. Right. So it's an ongoing issue that has still not been addressed. As uh, Cardinal Sean O'Malley said in The Globe, quoted him, when he found out that they were going to wait on voting on this accountability structure that they had, uh, he got the call at 7.30 on Monday morning, and he said it was his wake-up call, which I think is sort of a double entendre I there. Think it was, yeah. You know, I, it, they... I don't know what they're waiting for. I don't, I don't understand. You know, some have said, and I think that O'Malley says, that the Vatican wants to make sure that everyone is on board with exactly what they're going to do around this bishop accountability, and they're afraid that the United States will run forward and not do what they're, we're, I guess, supposed to do. But at the same time, it's like, how, how long do you need I'm to just get going this to say. together? This is not rocket science. You, you do something wrong. You get punished. We're transparent about it. Uh, you know... Can I tell you something also? By the way, we should play a little sound. I don't know if we made this clear. Did you make it clear when you were asked the question? The reason they didn't take action, even though the whole conference has been about sexual abuse, the crisis, and how to address it finally in America, the Vatican interceded at the last yep. minute, I think, yep. Sunday, and said, hold, hold off, off. Yeah. until February at least. The president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference is uh, this guy, uh, Donardo, pardon me, Cardinal Daniel Donardo. And here he is uh, saying he was disappointed to a reporter uh, by the Vatican's move. So what do you say to people whose pain can't wait until February? Uh, what I can say is we, uh, we sense a certain amount of pain ourselves. We are uh, working with you on your behalf, uh, working at local and national levels of our church. Uh, we will not stop working and to a certain extent pushing. You know, this is a disgrace. Ann Barrett Doyle, who I know we He's admire great. hugely, who's local, who was there, bishopaccountability.org. Well, we, this is in the Washington Post. What we see here is the Vatican again trying to suppress even modest progress by the U.S. bishops. We're seeing where the problem lies, which is with the Vatican. And, you know, a lot of these stories in the United States 
praise uh, our local Cardinal O'Malley. Mm -hmm. And with all due respect to Cardinal O'Malley, he heads the commission that is supposed to appointed by this pope to look into this. Yeah, and but not I only say, is it not only is it done virtually nothing, the two survivors who were originally on this committee both resigned from right. the committee because of its complete uh, lack of progress. I on will the say issue. this though, Marjorie, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I am surprised that the U.S. bishops are being so open about their their disappointment in what the Vatican. Has done. I, I can't say. Well, that's that, a good point. I, I can't say that I can recall. They're not. They haven't gotten in line. They're not saying, "Well, the Vatican's right. We're going to do what the Vatican said." Each of them that has been interviewed has yeah. expressed disappointment and some level of anger around this. And I, I, I know that's not where we want to be, but it's somewhere we haven't been before. Well, what's really I think uh, depressing about this whole situation to so many Catholics is there was so such hope for Pope. Francis when he became the Pope. And he's been very good on a lot of stuff, uh, refugees, the poor, you know, that kind of thing. But he seems to be so blind about yeah, he just this can't, he issue. he can't get out of his own way on this one. It's really kind of undermining everything yep. else he's, he's tried to do. So I think the hopefulness a lot of Catholics had about the church is kind of, you know, just falling apart. You know, I bet if this this uh, the the bishops were not american bishops meeting in america and had come to the same conclusion in another country it, they would have passed it i guarantee that this is sort of well, an anti catholic anti american catholic rebuke I'm, i i just well remember when this all began in boston that was the adjunct from the back yeah. well this is just a bunch of you know mm-hmm. uh, immoral boston. americans right, right. that are carrying on and, and 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 then they had to concede when at the end of the spotlight movie they had hundreds and hundreds of countries <laughs> right. that had the same problem so by the way, uh, it, what you were saying, there was uh, near universal disappointment. One person who I am disappointed in because he did not show great disappointment, we all met uh, Chris Coyne when he was a priest and was an assistant to mm-hmm. then Cardinal Law before we all realized what Cardinal Law had done. He's now the bishop, I think the only bishop in Vermont, uh, I believe, and he's there. Here's what his reaction is in the... Uh, um, in the Washington Post, other bishops, including Bishop Coyne, appear less perturbed by the Vatican-imposed delay, even suggesting it might be for the best. My first reaction said, Coyne, oh boy, this won't go over well because they'll see it as political. And he goes on to say, uh, we in the U.S. can have a limited view of the worldwide church, but it would be difficult if we came up with different policies and procedures. It, I mean... There are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of survivors in this country who are waiting to be shown some respect by the leaders in their church. And, you know, by the way, let me get back to this notion, you know, they can't defy the Vatican. We were discussing just last week, I think, with the reverends, what uh, that wonderful priest, uh, Father uh, Bob uh, Bullock, was that Bob his Bullock, name? yes. Who uh, led the Boston Priest yes, Forum, mm-hmm. who signed a letter signed a letter with a scores of other priests, yep. I know he did, saying that Cardinal Law, Cardinal Law, they, their boss, essentially, had to go. Now, if he and they could have the courage in that circumstance, mm-hmm. some of these bishops should have the courage to say more than they're disappointed. Their first obligation should be to their congregants who are survivors, not to uh, the fact that somebody, and it's not just the Pope, is, is apparently upset because they're moving, quote, too quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's appalling. It's, no, it's, a, it's ridiculous. Well, you wonder if it's even, the church is even going to survive in the United States of America. I mean, I just can't see where a lot of young people are going to be joining up. I don't think they, I mean, I don't think uh, they care. I mean, I, they, I, I know that there are bishops, conservative bishops, here in America and around the world who would rather have a smaller Catholic church that's more devout. 
They don't well, yes, they're not, there about, is a, there they're is not a, about marketing. They well, don't care. There is a money problem. Yeah. I think. Can I just say the same thing I've said repeatedly? And by the way, we're going to discuss this with listeners after uh, uh, Sue uh, leaves at the bottom of the hour. What we have learned, not just from here, but now Pennsylvania and elsewhere, this church was engaged in arguably the largest sexual violence ring mm-hmm. against children, maybe in the history of the country. What other institution? Would you say, well, they're going to cleanse themselves at some point? They'd be shut down. And I understand there's no constitutional authority for a government to shut down the Catholic Church. This is appalling. And Mm -hmm. the fact that the the Pope is delaying even one more day is just, to me, as a non-Catholic and a non-believer is just absolutely unconscionable. Well, that, and also when you now have the climate of the law, the law enforcement uh, right. across the country, the attorneys Attorney general and prosecutors who are no longer looking at it as a hands-off issue, yeah. that there will be more prosecutions. Oh, There's yeah. There's no doubt about it's it. Just gonna and they still worse. have no plan for it. <laughs> it's just going to... Yeah. I mean, the, 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 when you read what went on in Pennsylvania, you just thought, this is the sickest stuff I've yep. ever seen, and it's probably going to be repeated in these states. What was it, 300 priests and 1,000 uh, 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 survivors? Yes. Was it not cre- who they could identify? Yeah, they not, acknowledged they just, there yes. were far greater right. numbers, but they couldn't formally identify. Again, so we're yeah. going to discuss this with you guys at the bottom of the hour. Okay, so let's move on to something else. There was a big brouhaha a couple of years ago when Tom Nina was still <laughs> the mayor of Boston about Chick-fil-A wanting to come uh, to town because the owners of Chick-fil-A are not only opposed to gay marriage, but have given lots of money to anti-gay groups. Well, apparently, Chick-fil-A is coming right, right, over right there. down, right down the, the street. street right right there. Right there. Here at the Boston it. Public Library. And um, uh, Marty Walsh uh, has not yet responded to the Globe inquiries about what he thinks. Here's what Mayor Menino wrote to Chick-fil-A in uh, July 2012. In recent days, you said Chick-fil-A opposes same-sex marriage and said the generation that supports it has an arrogant attitude. Now, incredibly, your company says you're backing out of the same-sex marriage debate. Well, I urge you to back out of your plans to locate in Boston. You called supporters of gay marriage prideful. Here in Boston, to borrow your own words, we are guilty as charged. We intend to... To, uh, we are indeed full of pride for our support of same-sex marriage and our work to expand freedom to all people. We are proud that our state and our city have led the way for the country on equal marriage rights. There is no place for discrimination on Boston's freedom trail and no place for your company alongside it. That was the late Mayor Menino. And now I'll read Mayor Marty Walsh's comments. Oh, I don't have So any. are you upset? <laughs> Should Walsh be taking the same Walsh, position? Walsh, you know, I actually... the the. <laughs> I felt in some ways that um, Mayor Menino overstepped a bit uh, when it comes to terms of, um, you know, getting involved in saying that businesses can't operate, right? I felt that... Well, first of all, he had no formal power to stop him. He he? didn't, but do you remember there was an original statement Mm. where they were concerned about licensing Mm -hmm. and, you know, I wouldn't want to have... uh, Tom Menino on the other side, right? Okay, Um, you're right. But at the same time, I think... um, I actually even haven't heard a lot from the LGBT community about this. I mean, you know, Chick-fil-A has, is in Dedham, uh, just outside of the There's city boundaries. There's 11 stores in Massachusetts. I didn't know that Yeah, this it's morning, just yeah. right over the line uh, of West Roxbury. So it's, uh, and um, I don't, I, I, no one has contacted me. I haven't heard from any, of, any groups organizing protests. Um, was it possible because the train left the station? So one might, someone yeah. might argue, it doesn't matter what their position I, 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 is I, anymore. I think, I think that, I think so. I think that, and I also think that um, 
uh, folks think they have bigger, bigger fries to fry, if you will. So to speak. But the yeah. Back Bay Association, according to this Globe story, seems on board with yep. the whole thing. They yep. quote the uh, a member of that. Thinks so what's your position great. over it, there at Bay Windows? Well, I try to only drive by the Chick-fil-A in... Um, in uh, uh, denim on Sundays when they're closed so that I don't have any temptation to go in and eat their tremendously delicious sandwich. Is it, are they delicious? It really is. Wait, you had them? I, before all this at oh, airports. Sure you you know, What's so great about them? They're just great. They're great chicken sandwiches. Really? But, Although um, we may have to make an exception. If that's the... Uh, <laughs> So That's I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe they're getting better. They're closed on Sundays. I have to say they're one of these companies that I totally disagree with, but they actually walk the walk and talk the talk. They Meaning don't. What? They're op- they they uh, they're in a couple of football stadiums, so arenas, and they don't open on Sundays because Even they though the don't. Games are on yeah, Sundays. because yeah. the games are on Sundays wow. because they want to live their biblical truth. So okay. I'm, again, another mixed answer. Very generous. It's like I'm you. running for office. Thank you. So. <laughs> Nestor Ramos, if people don't know about him, he is a great columnist mm-hmm. for the he Boston great. Globe. He is great. I agree. And he just did a piece about the racket at the Ritz. This <laughs> is about the uh, the people that are on strike from the Marriott Hotels. We had them in here, one of the housekeepers Brian there. Lang, uh, Brian President Lang. President Union and the housekeeper. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, you know, they're, they've got legitimate concerns. They want to be able to have one job and afford to live in the city of Boston somewhere. But they're causing this massive 120 decibel uh, racket outside the Ritz-Carlton. And some of the neighbors are complaining, the people that live there, and the people that live near there are complaining as well. And uh, Nestor says he's down with the workers at the hotels, but he couldn't put up with this. Yeah, I, listen, uh, my, I have to sort of disclose, the only picket line I ever crossed, I did by accident, and my mother was on it. <laughs> she loved that, by the way. Yeah, I, well, it's nothing like being a young adult traveling to New York on Eastern Airlines, and you're like, "Oh my God, there's a!" Uh, I didn't know there was a picket, and you're like, oh, "My dad was a teamster. My mom was." Is your a mother shop. a flight attendant? No, my mother actually worked for Head Start in Revere, and they were in the same union as the Eastern Mechanics. Oh, is that right? Oh, like, oh, who okay. knows, right? <laughs> I had no idea. So uh, okay. as I'm crossing the picket line, I hear Susan Elizabeth McConnell, and I'm like, "Oh, oh my God, my mo- what are you doing?" That's you know. good. So. I am totally with the workers, but at the same time, I was in Copley Square um, shooting a piece for the show, mm. and I was like, was there a parade? What is happening? It is so loud you can hear it, yeah. that I think that uh, if you, if, from a marketing standpoint, you know, bring down the volume, and, and the people who are complaining, I mean, we act like just because they, they may be wealthy, they don't have problems, that they don't maybe have somebody who has OCD, or someone who has anxiety, or someone who just, you know, can't stand the racket, regardless of how much they're paying for rent. So I think there's a way that there's a compromise. I wish they didn't bring a lawsuit, you know, or try to, to, to get... But the I, owners there. Yeah, I, I think that the well, protesters they, can But can I tell you what the bigger issue bit. is, which, this is not folding Nestor, I think his piece is great... We are so unsupportive in this city of workers in mm-hmm. distress. We have national grid workers who have right. now been locked out for months by national grid. Not only, and I had this guy on my show who had lo- lost his health, had his health mm-hmm. insurance cut off right about the time he's diagnosed with cancer. Right. They're locked out. They volunteered to work if the lockout ended to go help with the Columbia gas right. disaster in the Merrimack Valley. The company said no. Essentially, that's you know in the back pages of our mind. This situation here, almost all 
lower ingr- uh, income immigrant workers who were, as Marjorie mm-hmm. said, are working two and three jobs. We had them on the show. We've done a few things. And then that's backburnered again. Right, it's so while you may be right about the sound and the decibels, mm-hmm. and I have some sympathy for the people in the upper <laughs> floors who have their sleep and their lives, uh, the bigger issue is we show no support except episodically for struggling low and moderate income mm-hmm. workers well, in the city. It's what disgraceful. Was really, I thought, an embarrassment for... Um, Governor Baker and all the politicians here, that they were unable to get National Grid to say, okay, we're going to send our people that are out on this job lockout thing up to help in the Merrimack Valley. Because these people are now, they're going to, it's great that they're going to get donations of Thanksgiving turkeys, but you want to sit in a freezing house on Thanksgiving Day eating your, uh, your well, turkey? You know, well, you we, think- we raised, I'm sorry, we raised this issue, I think, in the gubernatorial debate we did, but whether we did or not, we raised it in other settings. And as someone who's a friend of mine was very angry, what are they supposed to do? They convened him. I'll tell you what they could do. If this legislature was not on a five-month That's vacation, exactly what I was just they could pass say. a law right. saying no yep. public utility may ever lock out their workers. That's it. I would Period. Say, End listen, of discussion. We are in Massachusetts. We are in Boston. We have Mayor Marty Walsh, big union guy. We've got a whole state house filled with Democrats. Well, so Baker but, so, has a good relationship with the yeah. social worker union at right. uh, DCF, so he's shown some... So fix it. Yeah, I, I agree. Fix it. And they could have, and it, it's really a sad story. In any case... We're talking to Sue O'Connell. Oh, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, the caravan, it still exists, right? Yes, the caravan. You know, it's amazing how big an issue was you know, up until like last Tuesday. Tuesday just, just and then it sort of disappeared. I felt like they were just at our door. You know, meanwhile, while the president has all these troops at the border who are going to miss Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. right, and are not getting combat pay for being there, and they're sleeping 10 or 20 in a tent to keep this caravan, which is still yeah. walking, you know, I think another 500 miles. But in the meantime... There's an issue with LGBT people who are, were part of the caravan who were not physically abused, but contend that they were verbally abused by other caravaners. Right. One What's of, going on well, with that? Here, it, it, there's a, uh, they've arrived in uh, Tijuana, I believe. And, and it's important to note that in this caravan, there are people who are fleeing where they live to come to America because they can't live there anymore for a variety of terrible issues that none of us would tolerate in any, sta- any, any situation. And one of the reasons is uh, discrimination against LGBT people in their home countries. And this is further uh, uh, proven by the fact that there's a number of folks who were in the caravan who are LGBT who had to leave the caravan because they felt they were being verbally abused by the people in the caravan, who would also, by extension, be their neighbors in their, mm-hmm. their home uh, countries. Uh, and this is further troubling in that uh, you know, President Trump is saying that he wants to make it very difficult to, to, to claim asylum, and this will most definitely impact LGBT people, as well as people fl- fleeing domestic abuse, and violence because already uh, whoever, whomever becomes the attorney general is going to be against those sort of claims. So we now have a break-off caravan that can't return to their home and will have a hard time coming into the country. And we've had deaths. We've had, uh, I think, at least two transgender deaths of people who have been in the facilities where they're being held. So uh, not a great, a great situation for the folks in the caravan trying to get into the country and not knowing what's going to happen even if they do get in the country. Uh, Sue O'Connell, um, one thing, I don't understand this story. Maybe you can straighten this out for me. There was a New York Times piece 
to asking whether a, a fired transgender worker sue for job discrimination. And it talks about the, the Trump administration uh, pressing ahead with trying to get some attention to this case. I don't get what the Trump administration is doing. I don't understand. Well, there's uh, an underlying issue yeah. about whether title... Well, you can explain. Yeah, yeah well, the uh, title uh, seven, seven uh, which bars discrimination based on... Um, on on sex on gender right right and it it's in play pretty much because of a letter sent by the Trump administration whether or not gender expression uh, and and sexual orientation are covered under that like it, it's not necessarily on the laundry list you know you have to have a laundry yep. list in order to be covered so uh, the Trump administration has been able to sort of present this in a way that will as uh, the writer in the New York Times says, uh, my words, but his, his idea that it's clickbait for the Supreme Court, that if there's something that needs to be decided because it's not consistently decided in the lower courts, this would be something that the Supreme Court may want to weigh in, saying you know, that you are not, I can, I can fire you because you're gay, I can fire you because you're trans, I can fire you because you're a straight woman who wants to wear a tie to work, I can fire you. And that's not covered as a gender protection. Okay. So that's that's the troubling part of this. That if you know elections have consequences, and if the Supreme Court gets to weigh in on this, then we go back to having uh, LGBT people uh, open open season for firing us for whatever reason you want, or women who wear ties, and. Um, <laughs> You know, so this is another reason why we need the uh, the employment uh, equal employment and equal protection act that's trying to move its way through Congress, which Representative uh, Cicilline from Rhode Island is uh, trying to get passed. So you know, it's not done. Does that okay. make sense? That I, I guess so. I guess it sort of makes sense. You I know, uh, we- before you go, can I ask you a, a totally unrelated question? We're having two authors here, uh, I think in about 25 minutes. I don't know if you've seen the book yet, which is really impressive. It's called, it's photographs and, and copy uh, interviews to survive on the shore. Photographs and interviews with transgender and gender yes. and nonconforming older adults. In an interview that uh, uh, one of the authors did, she says, we're both aware, one of the, when they were asked about the genesis of this uh, book, why they decided to do it, we're both aware that in the LGBTQ world, there's a fair amount of ageism and lack of awareness about aging. And in the aging world, there's a fair amount of homophobia and transphobia and lack of awareness of LGBTQ issues, especially trans identities. You're nodding in agreement. Oh, yeah, you absolutely. Buy that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, we, we had, um, what's his name on from the Human Rights Campaign? You guys talk with oh, him. Oh, uh, uh, um, Chad Gifford, no, no. Chad Griffin, Griffin, no, Griffin. Yes, yeah, well, yeah. I always get him confused. We had him with, too. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And uh, it's it's they were here obviously supporting uh, yes question on three, three yeah. question three, the transgender protections keeping them in place, and um, you know I, he was a baby in the in the 1990s. He mm-hmm. worked for Bill Clinton. I was. Uh, on the board of the Human Rights Campaign, uh, which were? is the largest uh, LGBT political organization in the country, we didn't have we didn't have T in our name back then. We were a, a gay, a lesbian and gay organization, uh-huh. and um, I remember vividly how hard it was for trans people to be included in the in the LGBT and 
uh, being included and getting their rights protected. So these people now that were older than me are now much older than me and are in um, elderly housing or uh, looking to be peer, with their peers of their own age group and the discrimination that they face not only from the straight community but also from the gay community. And those things, I don't, I, I don't think they change as you, you age. Mm -hmm. And of course the ageism, you know, uh, unfortunately young LGBT people are just as guilty as, of ageism as everybody else is. So it's a, tough, it's a tough place to be if you're an older trans person. Okay, Sue Connell, thank you. Sue, thank you, you or much. a straight woman wearing a tie. Exactly. A straight That's going to be my, my coda for okay. today. Have you made up your mind yet on the Amazon thing, or you get back to us later? I'm going to get back to you okay. later. We'll okay. see how, uh, call me in 20 years. Wait a second, did you endorse two different people? I just realized in I two did. different papers during the campaign. Yes. Okay, fine. You see, well, you're starting to figure out I, how I just realized. Exactly, me, thank me. you very much. Okay, thank you, Media Maven. That's Media Thank Maven, you. Sue O'Connell. I love really that, is. Media Maven. She She's co-publisher of Bay Windows in the South End Still News broke. and a Boston Public Radio contributor, Sue O'Connell. Thank you, you very Sue. much for joining us. Up next, we're going to continue our conversation. We began with Sue O'Connell and Media Maven about the U.S. bishops. They had a plan to tackle the sex abuse crisis, and the Vatican shut it down. We're opening the lines asking you, has the Catholic Church lost all moral credibility? This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from our studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. We're live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. If you're just tuning in, we were talking to Sue O'Connell a couple of minutes ago about the Catholic Church and how the Vatican intervened at the last minute, telling the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, meeting in Baltimore, I think, to delay voting on measures that would hold bishops accountable for failing to protect kids from sexual abuse. Now we're having that conversation with you at 877-301-8970. How do you feel about the Holy See continuing to turn a blind eye to a crisis that is devastating the entire Catholic Church, one that has upended the lives of generations of practicing Catholics and has challenged the faith of so many. Is this a sign the Church has no intention of implementing meaningful reforms? If you're a Catholic, is this the latest move compelling you to reconsider whether you'll remain with the Church? Or are you okay with this, saying they have to be more deliberate? 877-301-8970. Let me tell you the quote that totally put me over the edge. After the Catholic Church has utterly failed to deal with this crisis forever, here is a quote from Archbishop Christophe Pierre. He's a French bishop who was sent by the Pope to Washington in 2016. There may be a temptation on the part of some to relinquish responsibility for reform to others uh, from ourselves as if, as if we were no longer capable of reforming or trusting ourselves. Assistance is both welcome and necessary, and surely collaboration with laity is essential. However, the responsibility as bishops of this Catholic Church is ours. Let me repeat that. As if we were no longer capable of reforming or trusting ourselves. When were they ever capable of reforming <laughs> well, or trusting themselves? Weren't. And you know, by the way, if we were, I, I get a lot, particularly since I'm not a Catholic, and right. particularly since I'm an agnostic, always get angry male, uh, male when we talk about this thing. If this was about, uh, what's a good example? about discrimination Schools? against women, oh. for example. I'd have an opinion, but whatever. This is about sexual violence mm -hmm. perpetrated against thousands and thousands of thousands of children, and for the boys and girls, by the way. Uh -huh. And it is pretty clear they do not give a damn about this. And when the bishops, after they were exposed 
in this great piece by the Boston Globe and the Philadelphia Inquirer a couple of weeks ago yep. about how a third of the bishops have some dark cloud because of their behavior, uh, a deserved dark cloud of behavior in this thing. That's a third of the living bishops in the United States. And they're finally ready to do something, which I'm sure would not be much. We don't know what they're willing to do. The Vatican intercedes and says, slow down, boys, until we have our meeting in February. This is totally unacceptable behavior. No, I, it's, 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 I think it's extremely horrible for the Catholic Church. I don't know if it, the American Church can survive. Uh, I, I think is the Gallup shows, everybody else looks at polls, the number of people that are going to Catholic churches is going down and down and down and down. I think it's very upsetting, um, obviously, to a lot of people. I mean, it's, they look ridiculous. You know, when you're saying, well, well, we're going we're gonna to not do much out sexual abuse, but we can't have women priests because that would be an outrage. We can't even have women deacons. Those are like second-tier people that can do some things. They can't be priests. We can't have divorced and remarried people getting communion. They're making all these rules, and they just look ludicrous because you can't make rules for anybody else, if you ask me, when you're, when you're supporting criminals sexually abusing Children. I mean, and they are just, criminals. They, well, are, they criminals. are criminals. And the only reason more of them are not in jail is one, because prosecutors were intimidated by the Catholic Church when the statutes of limitations had not run. And now, in many of these cases, the statutes of limitations have run. And they are escaping uh, uh, accountability free. By the way, we are told that we may have some technical issues with our phones, but. Uh, call in at 877-301-8970, and I think in a minute or two we will apparently be uh, able to uh, take your uh, calls. I don't know how anybody can defend this thing, and it, as I said when Sue was here, if I read one more positive word about how uh, uh, Cardinal O'Malley is leading the charge when he had an opportunity and has an opportunity to chair this commission on sexual assault against minors or whatever the mm-hmm. hell the thing is called, and is it hyperbolic to say he's done absolutely nothing except cause the only survivors on the commission to resign in protest? I mean, is that... Well, I mean, I think in, in, in fairness, the one thing that has happened is I think that there's a lot less of this going on right now. Even in that gruesome Philadelphia report, the vast majority of those horrible cases were before 2002. And I think every parish has the group that is supposed to monitor and make sure that everybody knows the rules. And I think that they are very, very tough on priests priest. Mitchell Garabedian, who I respect a huge amount, one of the lawyers has led the charge here, says he continues to get calls all the time about contemporary acts of well, I, sexual I know, violence against I know against he says kids. that, and I don't doubt him for a second, and I'm sure he does, but I don't think the numbers are anywhere near what they used they to be. I mean, be. you had these guys like Gagan and Shanley. They had abused hundreds and hundreds of kids, so I think that it's, it's, um, it's, it's different. And also, frankly, um, Sadly, for the priests who are good priests, I think parents don't trust them anymore. You know, you don't. You're not. You're gonna. You're gonna have your kid go out for ice cream with Father Joe. No, I don't think so because you're gonna be suspicious of Father Joe, and you're gonna be suspicious of having your child anywhere near a priest by himself. So I think that from parents, the uh, trust that they used to have toward priests, even if they're if they're even still going to church, is gone. By the way, uh, we have uh, the the way the phones are working or not. I don't know. Uh, no. we well, apparently. Uh, uh, it is. So let's go to Gabby in Pepperell. You are next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for the call. Hi, Gabby. Hi. Actually, it's Debbie, but that's okay. Oh, Debbie. So sorry. Uh, Hi, Debbie. My apologies. That, that's okay. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm calling because um, so my mother went through the Catholic schools because that's what they did. 
and um, up until eighth grade. And the school she went to, of course, I didn't know about any of this until she almost went right before she passed mm -hmm. because she had cancer. And what happened was I was taking care of her, and I noticed because she had lost all of her hair that um, she had this huge scar that was like above her ear that was almost like a little bit behind your hairline that went all the way behind her ear. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, and she was the one, she told me that um, it was the priest in her school when she was a child that had beaten her and sexually abused her. Oh my God. And she literally went to her deathbed with this information, didn't really want to get into which, I mean, I was shocked. I didn't want to, you know, bother her by asking mm -hmm. more questions. The woman was dying. And it just never ceases to amaze me how this just doesn't end. And the cardinals and the bishops and everybody else above the priest knew, Phil knows, don't seem to care, don't do anything, nothing changes. I was brought up Catholic. I, the religion itself, I kind of go with. I don't go to church. You know, I have two kids. My daughter went, you know, I would never let my kids be alone with anybody because I don't trust anybody. But yeah. I just don't understand why it doesn't end. I just don't get it. And they just keep going now. There's, oh, well, you know, we're going to wait till February. And then something else is going to be said. And then it's going to be after that. And after, we're all going to die. And they're still not going to have done anything. Gabby, I hope you're wrong. But I, I tend to think you're right. And thanks for sharing the story of uh, your mother. We appreciate it. 877-301-897. Is there any move afoot in the church to create in this country, an alternative infrastructure that is maybe well, Vatican-free? Well, I, you know, uh, people, the, the Catholic Church is supposed to be universal. It's supposed to be all around the world. It's the mm. same thing everywhere. I mean, so I don't know of any movement. Maybe there is, but I think the movement mostly has been people leaving the church. They've become, they've just left the church altogether. Maybe they've become Episcopalians, gone to a different church, or become some what kind it, of Protestant or something. Your kids are not young anymore. No, they're not. So what is, you know, obviously a lot of Catholics. Right. What is a Catholic who shares the concerns you have say to their Six-year-old, no, the six-year-old kid may not understand. A nine-year-old kid about how they have to engage in whatever all of the, you know, the, the pr protocols are, or the, the things that young kids have historically done within the Catholic Church. And the little kid says, well, I read, I heard on the news, mom or dad or whatever. What possible argument is there that this is the place where you want your child to become integrated. Well, because in fairness, there are individual churches, parishes like my own that are extremely progressive, that are very welcome to, uh, to women. To very, they can't have women priests, but they're very welcome in management of the church, and they're very welcome to gays and lesbians, and they're, uh, you know, they get up and they preach about this. We just got a, we just got a uh, email from, from Katie who said uh, she thought her priest gave a homily this summer um, that talked about how you, it, it's time to welcome the LGBT community, better late than never, I guess you'd say, and divorce Catholic and all that kind of thing. So there are a lot of very progressive churches that do a lot of incredible work with the poor, with the homeless, with the hungry. There's a lot of great groups within those churches. So you say to yourself, or you say to your kids, I guess, if you want to keep going, the church is corrupt. The church is immoral. The church is, is, is the hierarchy of the church is a disgrace. But, but that's not what we're about uh -huh. here. That's not what we're about here. And, you know, it's a hard sell to many people. I mean, I, f I debate it um, all the time. But I think for a lot of Catholics, it's difficult to go become something else. So can you explain one more thing to me before we get back to the calls what? at 877-301-8970? We were talking about Father Bob Bullock before, mm -hmm. who led scores of priests in the Boston Archdiocese who had the courage 
to stand up and say Cardinal Law had to go, which he did. Why aren't any of these bishops in Baltimore, uh, to my knowledge, not one saying with all due respect to the Pope, we have an obligation to the people at home and we just have to vote. By the way, today, the vote was to be today on whatever it is that they came up with. Listen, I think if they had done that, it would have been huge. It would have been a huge thing to say, we are standing up to the Vatican. We are united as American bishops, and this is what we're doing. Take it or leave it. But they didn't. I mean, I don't know why they didn't, but they, they should have, and they made a huge mistake. And I think this is going to hurt the church even more. Because, again, how do you have—I mean, that's what's—you know, I have this argument with Irene Monroe all the time that paints the, the Pope as just a disaster on all fronts. To me, he's not a disaster on all fronts. He's obviously a disaster on this front. But how can you have somebody up there talking about— how you need to take in refugees, how you need to work with the poor, while you are seeming to do nothing on the sexual abuse of children. So he has lost uh, a lot of his moral authority, and it's really kind of too bad. But, yeah, but I guess, uh, yeah, and I've heard, obviously I've been in the room when you and Irene have had those discussions. Mm-hmm. If this was not the Catholic Church, and it was the CEO of another institution, and the CEO had uh, given millions of dollars through his company to poor people mm-hmm. and it helped refugees, but had hundreds, if not thousands, of his mid-level managers, which is what these bishops are, either perpetrating or allowing the perpetration of sexual violence against children. You wouldn't say, well, that CEO is doing great work on refugees and poor people. It just so happens he's not so hot. So why does the Pope, uh, why do, I just don't understand. Because why does the Pope because I think it's so, it's like an organization with hardening of the arteries. I mean, the idea that the Pope would say, gee, maybe we should rethink divorce and remarry Catholics, getting communion, it's caused like this revolution. All these left, the Catholic Church is just like the United States of America. There are all these right wingers that, that think, how can we possibly let divorce and remarried Catholics mm-hmm. get communion? How can we possibly have compassion for someone who's had an abortion and wants to come back and join the church? They're like these nuts. They, 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 on, the, on, the, on the way far right. And then there are these progressives on the other side. So it's like every time the Pope, who is a progressive, despite his lousy record on the sex abuse thing, does something, the whole world blows up. And I think he's got a food taster over there in Rome because he's surrounded by people that think he's the worst possible person that could uh, ever be in at the head of the church because he's talking about what, to most lay people, he should be talking about with, again, this glaring disaster on the sex abuse stuff. Tim in a car, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling in, Tim. Hi. Hi, how are you today? We're good. Thank you for calling. Hey, um, well, I'm 66, almost 67 years old. Um, I came from, uh, grew up in a very abusive household and, uh, I went to a priest for help when I was 12 years old and got sexually abused by the priest. And and uh, was his response when you know they have the very these guys are predators. Um, you called them criminals earlier. I don't criminals not strong enough word. Mm-hmm. Um, I went after the church in 1990. I had a you know basically almost had a breakdown over because I, I kept all this to myself, bottled up inside my entire life, and um, it, it was. It was just a uh, you know horrible thing to live with because um, yet, as a child you feel like somehow you caused this to happen you know mm-hmm. and uh, but the church's response was through all of this they offered me some money on the condition that I be quiet and basically a gag order if I yeah. couldn't talk about it or anything I told them where they could put their money um, we pursued it um, and it actually turned into uh, they actually pressed charges against the priest. 
Um, but the, the bishops that were the ones that were moved, we discovered in the process of discovery with my attorney, that these bishops were moving these predators around from parish to parish to parish, where they would, as soon as they would get caught, they'd just move them to another parish. And the bishops are complicit in this. The bishops, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, absolutely is complicit in this. They, they've actually moved some of these guys to the Vatican because in the Vatican they've got diplomatic immunity and are away from prosecution here in the United States. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, uh, Umberto Medeiros was one of the cardinals that was named in my, in my suit. And um, uh, it, it was just, you know, these guys, they, um, it was Archdiocese of uh, Providence, which mm -hmm. is, you know, I grew up in Rhode Island. And so, you know, the, the church is, they just had an opportunity to step up. And, you know, I had hopes when I saw this new pope and this new pope came on board and, he started making all these changes and, and um, you know, these statements, these wonderful statements of position of the church. But then when it comes to this particular issue, the church is falling flat on its face. And um, like I say, the, the, the hierarchy of the church actually should be, should be held accountable to this. Couldn't agree with you more. Tim, we really, really appreciate well, your candor and Thank you for calling in. If we didn't mention it before, we should, that back in 2002, when the bishops all got together, they exempted themselves mm -hmm. That's from correct. very important. all That's right. the rules. So they went after the priests, but they didn't go after themselves. And many of these bishops are living in luxury retirement, um, being, being financed by the Catholic Church. Margaret? And again, before Margaret gets on the phone, I'll say what I've said four what? times today. This would not be tolerated in any other institution of the United States. We would not be praising a cardinal in Boston who heads the commission that has done nothing. Yep. We would not be praising the bishops for almost passing resolutions or whatever. This, they have overseen the largest ring of sexual violence <laughs> against children, I know. maybe in the history of the it's United like States of America. Organization. And worse. I, I mean, and, and they are predators, just like the caller said a minute ago. Margaret, I'm sorry, from Shrewsbury. Hi, Margaret. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. Hi. Um, I just have three quick points. Sure. Um, I'm a practicing Catholic. And Jim, I feel like you have two, when you talk about this, there are two options. Yep. You know, Anyone who stays agrees with it, and anyone who and, and if you don't, you leave. Well, there are those of us in the pews who are angry beyond. We're holding every priest accountable. We want answers from our church. I agree with you 100%. Every bishop, every priest, every lay person that was involved, because let me tell you, lots of people know what goes on in parishes. Mm -hmm. Lots of people know. Everyone should be held accountable and put in jail, frankly. That's my first point. Is you know, it's it's uh, my I, my church is important to me. My Catholicism is important to me. It makes me heartbreaking, and it's very hard to stay, but I do. Um, it, the second thing is, I think uh, Pope Francis is smarter than we think. And yes, he's, it seems like he's dragging his feet and taking his time. But as Marjorie you said earlier, this is a worldwide church. We have billions of, of, mem of members. I think he doesn't trust the U.S. Conference of Bishops. I think he knows their number. And I think he realizes they're going to dumb it down and not do enough. I think he's holding that, going to hold them accountable. I think they're nervous. Before you and continue, frankly, Margaret, what indication do you, what call, I hope you're right, what causes you to think that the Pope is willing or able to go further than whatever the bishops well, in Baltimore were contemplating doing? I'll tell you why. 
my son is a theologian. He's called into your show many times, oh. actually. He studies the Catholic Church like, you know, people know the Boston Red Sox staff. <laughs> and he's incredible what he knows about what's going on in Rome. He, like, daily follows it. Um, and he is convinced that Francis has something bigger coming. I wish, I hope he's listening. He's in Boston today. I hope he's listening. Mm. But, uh, you know, there, I think it's, I, you know, uh, when it's a headline, we all read into it. But I think there are many more players. And the last thing I want to say is, Marjorie, you had it right. There are factions in our church that are just like the politics of the United States. Oh, yeah. Catholics are out, they're out to kill each other. <laughs> I mean, Catholics are, we're not like a united church. No, we are not. And there are people, yeah, and there are people that, that are giving these bishops a pass because, you know, oh, it's Father so-and-so, he's a good guy. I mean, I'm fighting it, you know, literally with people in the pews next to me going, are you kidding me? You know, Margaret, Margaret, you're a great caller, but before you go, let me read to you what this Archbishop uh, Christophe Pierre said again from the Washington, uh, it's quoted in the Washington Post. There may be a temptation, this is the Pope's representative to the United States, to Washington, there may be a temptation on the part of some to relinquish responsibility for reform to others from ourselves as if we were no longer capable of reform or trusting ourselves. What evidence is there that the hierarchy of the Catholic Church has any desire to reform itself or be trusted when it comes to issues of sexual violence are there any i think i think the hierarchy as a whole doesn't want anything to change in the church i agree but i really think the push is going to come from the people you know I there's going to be a quote-unquote blue wave in the catholic church because Margaret's <laughs> right the american church is going to die it's going to die out well Margaret, i hope you're right tell your kid to call us uh, again sometime soon and bring us up to speed thanks for the call margaret you know you're a big fan of ann barrett doyle who has barrett. up uh, bishop's accountability with terry McKiernan, if you haven't Bishop seen it, bishopaccountability.org is the site. It's a great website, and it shows site. all the priests and all the accusations, and they have a... With documentation. Have, with documentation. They have an office, I forget where it is, in Waltham or one of the it. W towns, with every single file. I mean, they, I got, they think they've got the biggest repository in the world. But Ann Barrett-Doyle, who basically has quit her job to be a full-time uh, arguer, an activist against the church, is a Catholic. It's still a Catholic. I, I mean, I, I find that hard, hard to believe. Well, yeah, we shouldn't say against the church, against the corruption and against sexual corruption. violence in yeah. the church. And she has said, and I wrote a story about her, she has said that she sees this as her mission to try to save this corrupt institution from itself. Mm-hmm. That's a hard uh, position for a lot of people to understand, but she's there and so is McCarran. So what do you think about what Margaret said about what she believes to be the... Uh, the real agenda of Pope Francis and that he's smarter and more creative than I am giving him well, credit for. I, 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 I'm not seeing it, but maybe Margaret knows something that, that I don't. I think he's been, he's been blind about this. He's been very bad about this. We saw it in Chile uh, when only after he was taken to mm-hmm. task by Cardinal O'Malley, and when Cardinal O'Malley criticized him for not doing the right thing about these abuses in Chile, I mean, half of Boston that read that about fell off their chair because you couldn't believe the Cardinal was actually mm-hmm. uh, g- uh, criticizing the Pope. But, and I the mean, Pope flipped ultimately the Pope, after that, too. He did. He, he flipped. He did, a, he did a 180. But for some reason, he just... And we still don't know what he did or did not know about Father McCarrick, the Cardinal. Uh, from, well, we don't know what Cardinal O'Malley knew not. or did not we know. We do not. We are told, with virtually no transparency the two letters that uh, went to him on this subject yeah. were not intercepted, but ended at the secretary level. His and by own- the way, the right wing of the Catholic Church wants to blame all this 
on homosexuality. No. That's all they talk about is the homosexual priest, the homosexual priest. I mean, that's their whole big agenda, and that's what has to be happen to have everybody you know, driving gay people out of the church, which is really horrible and depressing. Let's do, I think we have time for one more, maybe. Joanne in Dorchester, you're on Boston Public Radio with Marjorie Egan and me, Jim Browdy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, Jim. Hi. 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 What I want to say, uh, my neighborhood in Dorchester had a conflict with the church um, a number of years ago, and it wasn't by any means as important as this issue and as horrible as this issue of sexual abuse, but it taught me some lessons about the attitude of the church that I think are, you know, wider than that. And they, we, it was about a, a house that the church owned. They wanted to tear it down. The neighborhood wanted to keep it and have a family live there. And the way that the church treated the rest of us, the church officials and priests, the local priests, they, they were contemptuous of us. They, 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 we got the Landmarks Commission involved, and one of the priests made a very disrespectful statement about the expertise of the Landmarks Commission staff. Um, they lied blatantly about things about the house and about what had happened, and in ways that were easy for us to, even to were transparent lies that we could easily see were, were, were untrue. And the, and, and everybody that worked for them, even the lay people that were their lawyer and their contractors and so forth, were all older white Catholic men, all Italian, all all, Catholic, all Irish, and except one was, who was Italian. And so my view is that they're like, <laughs> they're so insular, these guys, they only talk, they're all guys, they're all older, they only talk to each other. They, they don't do. They don't have any idea how they look to the rest of us. They don't, they're so insulated and so, 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 so separated from the rest of the world that they think they can get away with this stuff. Because they have been getting away with this stuff. Well, they have been, yes, they have been for decades, for centuries. And, and, and it's only, you know, very recently that people are rebelling and saying, no, this isn't okay just because you're a priest. You, what, you don't get to say what's right and what's wrong when you're doing these bad things. So I think that it, 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 there's a blindness there that, 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 that has enabled this sexual abuse thing to go on that's part of a larger sort of blindness that the church has to ordinary people and to how ordinary people view them because they don't really interact with ordinary people. They only pay attention to each other. Joanne, that was God, a beautiful it's call. True. I mean, it's, that was it's great. so ridiculous that the bishops Thanks, are Joanne. down there in Baltimore just talking to each other. Obviously, they need some outside people. They need some women with power. They need some lay people, but they just don't get it. And you're thinking of disgraces that have gone on locally. Um, it, 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 she was talking about one in Dorchester. But I remember a couple of years ago, maybe it was the more than that now. No, the lady presentation school up oh, there of course. in, in uh, Brighton when they... They locked the joint? <laughs> the cardinal shut the place down. Yeah. And the kids, a little... They had little, their goldfish. The goldfish the, dying in the, in the water because they didn't give the kids a chance to get out of there and have a discussion about what was going to happen. And they just, they just shut the place down. So they're absolutely in many sections and frankly you know in a lot of places you go to a catholic mass and it's horrible the sermon's horrible the music is horrible you know why you get what you pay for you don't pay the singer you got some poor pathetic soul is up there singing half a note off key so things are in very rough shape there is absolutely no question about it and it's amazing anybody's still there okay we only have time this is really it donna in the car you're the last one on this topic on boston public radio hey donna well, hi. hi. I just wanted to say I essentially agree with what that previous maybe three callers ago, Marjorie, I think her name was Margaret. Marge. Margaret. 
what what she, or Margaret, what yeah. she um, had to say about, I really do believe uh, that Pope Francis does have um, something bigger and mm-hmm. more difficult than our American bishops would ever come up with. I think he's a man who thinks, and I think he's a man who prays, and I do believe that he'll come up with something um, more difficult. I mean, not Donna, can I, Donna let me just ask you quickly, if I can, because we're running out of time. If you are right, and if Margaret is right, then hearken back to the example that Marjorie picked a minute ago. Why was he so wrong uh, in Chile until he was uh, called out by uh, Cardinal O'Malley here? Why was he so uh, uh, dismissive of uh, overwhelming evidence in Chile until he decided he couldn't take that position anymore? How, do you expl- how does that fit yes. your notion? My notion. Yes, he was. And um, it was infuriating, disappointing, and all of that. What I think that showed, more than that he got caught in ill behavior, um, is that he was able to listen to what his own um, misbehavior, whatever you want to call it, may have been, and have the humility to make another choice, well, you're a charitable to go soul. another way. You're a charitable soul. Don, I hope you're right. I hope Margaret's right. I don't see the evidence that you do, but I hope you're both right and something big comes out in february which is years too late well there's only there's only one good thing in this whole disaster what's that it's when these people try to tell you something like you can't do this you can't do this you can't do the other thing you say (laughs) who are you are you kidding me fine point (laughs) okay coming up a new book of photographs documenting transgender life after 50 breaks uh stereotypes transgender life after 50 breaks stereotypes along the way i read that wrong this conversation is next on 89.7 wgbh boston public radio He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. In the run-up to the midterms, the Trump administration said it would consider narrowly defining gender as an immutable condition determined by genitalia at birth. Doing so would mean about 1.4 million Americans who identify as transgender would find their identity eradicated. A new book does just the opposite. It's called To Survive on the Shore, Photographs and Interviews with Transgender and Gender Nonconforming Older Adults. It's by photographer Jess Dugan and Vanessa Fabre. She's a social worker and a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. You can catch them both tonight at 7 o'clock at the Harvard Bookstore. Jess and Vanessa, thanks so much for being here. Good to meet you both. Likewise. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, thank you very much for coming in. So tell us, either one of you, how this came to be, how this book, what was the beginning? Sure, yeah. So I'm a photographer. I've worked within LGBT communities for a long time. I work within portraiture. Um, and I had photographed within trans communities, actually here in Boston, as well as in other cities. And 
Uh, Vanessa is a social worker and researcher whose work focuses on the intersection of LGBTQ communities and aging. We met in Chicago in 2012. We met country line dancing, which is in some ways... <laughs> Isn't that everybody meets? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> country line dancing at a gay cowboy uh -huh. bar. And uh, so we met, and we're also partners, so we started dating, and we realized that we had so much in common in terms of our research. And one day I said, you know, we should start a project together. And we initially thought it might be a little bit of a joke, and then we realized, no, we really have something here. And so we, we launched this project together. We made the first portraits here in Boston, actually, in 2013. And I conduct, uh, I create the photographs, and Vanessa conducts the interviews with mm -hmm. each subject. But Vanessa, it's not just about art. I mean, the goal was not just to profile people with beautiful photographs and stories about their lives. It was also to address, for lack of a better expression, a, a, a void in people's understanding of what life is like for the older transgender community, correct? Right, I think from the very beginning, um, we wanted people who might already know about trans issues to see them in a new light and through an aging lens. Um, and there's a fair amount of ageism in, broadly in the LGBT community, and so um, it was really important to bring the aging component to the trans What's that about? Part. Sue O'Connell, who publishes Bay Windows, was here before, and I read a quote, I think, from you. I believe it's from you, Vanessa, in some interview, where you said exactly what you, what you just said. Where does that come from? Where's, what's, what gave birth to that ageism, for lack of a better expression? Well, I would say the LGBT community is mirrors our society as a whole. So ageism in LGBT communities is the same no ageism different. that we all hold within ourselves. And so I think um, you add to that um, ideas about sexuality. Um, sometimes we think of older people as asexual, um, broadly speaking. So then when you add that to the LGBT component of things, you start to invisibilize people who hold those more minority Identities. By the way, unfortunately, you can't see the pictures here, but pictures you really got to see it. Great. What's the name of the woman on the cover in the, in the oh fur my God. coat? Is it Gloria? Her name is Gloria. Yes. One of the greatest photos. I mean, uh, otherworldly great, she by looks the like way. like a movie star. I mean, it's just it's yeah. just the perfect photo. Yeah. What are common threads? Since you did the interviewing and the writing, Vanessa, what are the common threads, if there are common threads, through this dozens of people you profiled? Right. So I think before commenting on the common threads, I think it's very important, especially with trans issues, that we push back on any single narrative. So for a very long time in the United States, in order to receive some kind of support from the medical community, you were required to tell the same story, whether it was your story or not. And some people would recognize the idea of being trapped in the wrong body. Mm -hmm. And that is valid for some people, but when it becomes the only story that can get you some of the support that you need, it becomes problematic. So at the foundation level, we wanted to make sure that this was not a book telling one story. And so there's a lot of diversity that we worked hard to cultivate. That being said, uh, yes. there are common themes. I think that um, most people in the book did experience stigma, discrimination, struggles. Often those struggles started at home. They then carried on and experienced those sometimes in school settings and in healthcare settings. So there's a universal struggle there, but there's also a universal um, creativity and how people um, generate their own resilience. Um, we were astounded by how often people um, reconfigured their support networks, broke free from problematic relationships. So we wanted the, the common themes are the struggle and the resilience. And, 
We wanted um, people to feel the joy and the struggle at the same time. That's the voice of Vanessa Fabre. Jess Dugan is with her. They are the people behind To Survive on the Shore, photographs and interviews with transgender and gender nonconforming older adults. Well, Jeff, I know you know the pic- you took the pictures, but you know the stories, too. This gorgeous picture. I thought this was Boston, actually, the picture of Gloria. It looks a little bit like the brownstones of Boston. I guess it's Chicago. Right. But she talked, and, and other people talked about, she realized... She was not necessarily transgender. She didn't have the word, but she realized there was something up when she was like a teeny kid. That's, I think that's fairly common from some of the people you've talked to. Right, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we wanted to do while creating this project was include a really broad array of life narratives. So some of the people in the project, as you mentioned, had an awareness of their trans identity or that something was off about how they were supposed to act at a very young age. Other people transitioned in their 60s or 70s. So it's really um, diverse in terms of people's experience in the world. Mm-hmm. Is it Bobby, someone- by the way, who's the one, uh, 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 I can't remember who, and I'm so sorry, who tells her partner who is, uh, has some, uh, you're nodding your head, Jess, so what's the story when she discloses to her partner that she's trans? Was, it Bo- uh, was her name Bobby? That was Bobby, And what's yes. the reaction? And she um, lived in Detroit. She actually had a That's very was, long right. career in the military and transitioned in her 70s. Um, and she has a story in the book about picking up her boyfriend at the bar and after they had been dating for a while, um, telling him that she was trans, and she said, oh, you're better than any woman I've ever met. We can forget about that now. <laughs> and um, moved on. And moved on. But she's actually someone who spoke a lot about dating and, and pursuing relationships in her 70s and 80s. And so that's something we wanted to include as well. Well, there's a person from Boston, uh, Chris from Boston, because he was from Boston. I picked, mm-hmm. picked this picture out immediately, of course, who talked about um, c- keeping his family together after he transitioned as well. Tell us a little about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Chris has an amazing story. His is one I share often when I'm speaking to student groups or things like that. He was in a lesbian relationship. He actually gave birth to both of his children and speaks about how he, um, his identity as a man and his identity giving birth were never inconsistent. And so one of the things he talked about is how within his family, his transition wasn't really a huge deal. Things kind of progressed as normal. But in the world and out in society, it caused all kinds of issues. He has a very funny quote about trying to fill out the FAFSA forms yeah. for <laughs> his kids to go to college and trying to explain that he's a biological mother and legally a man yeah. and was never married to his former spouse because yeah. they were lesbians. So it's, it brings up this idea of how, of course, um, a gender identity and a sexuality is innate and is internal, but you also have to interface in the society and in the culture at large, and we wanted to balance those two ideas in the book. Do you know if the kid got, this, got the money from the federal government <laughs> after all this hassle? Yeah. Do we know if that happened? <laughs> came through? Because those FISA things are such a challenge for anybody. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know what I also f- found? That there was a story about, I think it's Susie, a 51-year-old, who talked about suffering from all these different physical uh, uh, um, diseases, I guess you'd say, COPD and being a smoker and migraines and all that. And then what happened? Right. I think for so many people, they talk about um, the physical relief, the mental health benefits that they receive when they push back finally and say, enough is enough. I have to be myself. Um, For very many people that we interviewed, um, they talked about thoughts of suicide or knowing people who had committed suicide. So we're talking about very severe uh, mental health issues. And um, when people have that moment when they realize that their life is in their own hands, it's not for society to control anymore, that 
they haven't they haven't become what society tried to make them to be they're going to do it themselves there is a tremendous breakthrough and a lot of people will talk about depression alleviating um, suicidal ideation um, receding um, and really starting to feel more in control of their mental health yeah this when person talks these, about how, they, how it, it, she was able to quit smoking yeah you know, mm-hmm. like just quit smoking mm-hmm. is one who smoked mm-hmm. is not easy. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I think there's an important point for all people in terms of mental health that um, she made the connection between society's constraints on her and her own individual mental health. As Caitlyn Jenner said in her Vogue interview, she said, if I was lying on my deathbed, I would say to myself, you never dealt with yourself. So that's thinking of it in terms of individual issues, but gender identity is, is individual, but it's also social. It's, we're talking about society when we're talking about even our own individual mental health. Speaking of Caitlyn Jenner, who said a couple of weeks ago, oops, I was a little bit wrong about Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, uh, when, did, when did you do these interviews? What, what point in time were the interviews done? We st- oh, go ahead. So we, we have worked on this project between 2013 and we did the last interview and photograph in 2017. So it's mostly, mostly pre-Trump. Mm-hmm. Mostly. And also, since you brought up Caitlyn Jenner, um, also mostly pre the moment that surrounded her in terms of the media. And and, uh, I know that uh, uh, Vanessa said before, you know, there there are only so many uh, common threads. But was there a common feeling about how society is evolving, assuming it is, and I think Mm -hmm. it is, on this issue, particularly, I mean, you were dealing with older people who lived through the worst uh, of this. You're both nodding, starting with you. Is there a sense that people are getting it a little bit? I mean, one of the things we discussed with Sue O'Connell for years, we've known Sue for decades. I I cite this all the time. There was a poll in the New York Times 15 years ago, we had Sue on our old show, that said the only two demographics in the country which supported gay marriage were young people and people who said they knew a gay person. The latter, to us, being the most important, because obviously the more people knew gay people, the more accepting they were. And that was my sense of the trans world, too. The more it it is around us and the more you encounter trans people. Is that what these people you interviewed are experiencing? Yes, I think a lot of people talked about... um, you know, they had, a, it was kind of a bittersweet feeling about how times have changed. They mm. were happy, delighted to be alive as things have evolved, and they do see improvements. Um, but there's some sadness in realizing that you might have come out sooner and um, gotten to enjoy some of the benefits that younger people are experience, experiencing today. And there's another point to that, that... Um, these stories remind us that trans isn't new. This is not made up by young people. And a lot of young people will tell us, their grandparents say, this is just a phase. You've made up all these new mm. words. But it's hard to deny a 90-year-old telling you their, about their trans identity. And it's hard then to think that this is a new thing. But, you know, but the acceptance issue, uh, correct me if you, obviously if you think I'm wrong, is not just the society at large. Historically, it's been also in the LGBTQ community as well. That's changing too, Jess. Yes or Mm -hmm. or no? It is. I think so. I mean, I think to your point, there are so many more people who are out as being transgender. There are so many more representations of people who are transgender or gender nonconforming. There are more people on TV shows and the media than we've ever had before. And I think these things are really significant. There are resources for trans youth in a way that there weren't 15 or 20 years ago. Um, one of the things that was important to us, particularly thinking about this moment we're in with more mainstream media exposure, was to tell a wide array of stories and focus on people who are everyday. They're 
you know people you would encounter that's exactly in what any the kind of ordinary book, interaction um, and to show that people are having extraordinary lives they're growing and developing and changing and they're making really incredible decisions but they're also um, people you would encounter in any kind of life situation. We're talking to Jess Dugan, a photographer, and Vanessa Fabre, a social worker. Their book that they did together is to survive uh, on this shore, photographs, interviews with transgender and gender nonconforming older adults. You know, Vanessa, you mentioned something that I think was very scary to think about. Um, for, a transgender, for a transgender person who is 70, 75, 80, worried about nursing homes. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the discrimination that you would be afraid of, and that's a legitimate fear, I would think. I think it is one of the most critical and scary and urgent issues to address. Broadly speaking, all people at this point in time should be thinking about long-term care, their finances, where they will receive care that is um, respectful, that they can afford. But for trans people, that is urgent um, and very scary. Nursing homes are not at all trained or prepared to care for people whose bodies might seem incongruent to them as the provider. Um, and that is, it is a scary prospect. And so a lot of people talked about their fears looking towards the future. Um, and that requires policy engagement, political action, as well as um, kind of a humanistic caring for someone. So I do think that is one of the most urgent issues for trans older adults and that we hoped would come through. Is anything good happening on that front? Yes, actually, like what? Boston is one of the nation's leaders in addressing LGBT aging issues. The LGBT aging project here in Boston, based at Fenway Health, um, oh, yeah. has done an amazing job of training providers in just mainstream senior services mm -hmm. to become more knowledgeable about people's identities and their bodies. Um, so there's a lot of wonderful work being done both in local settings like Boston and, and nationally. You know, we picked out a lot of some of our favorite stories, but Jess, tell us a couple of your favorite stories. Oh my goodness, there are so many. I mean, each person had such an incredible story. I think Gloria on the cover actually had one of the most amazing stories. At the time we made that photograph, she was 70. And she lives in Chicago, and she uh, grew up being taught how to be a lady by the women in her family. And so she ran a charm school at the LGBT Center in Chicago for young trans women of color, um, teaching them how to be a lady. So they all call her Mama Gloria. She's, you know, has this incredible community and group of people in Chicago. Um, and at the time we interviewed her, I think she was just taking up comedy as a second hobby and career. And, you know, it's like in her 70s, so just incredibly inspiring people. Um, another story that comes to mind is of Sam and Hank. They're in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and I knew them when I was young, actually. Um, and we drove down uh, to spend the day photographing and interviewing them, and I was particularly struck by Hank, Hank and Sam's story, but Hank in particular as someone who would probably use the word gender nonconforming or genderqueer today, but uh, which is very similar to my personal identity, but because of our 40-year age difference, our experiences in the world were so dramatically different, and that really resonated to me, just hearing how much Hank had had to struggle to um, live a life that has been much easier for me. And so tell us, he, he would be, what, 80? Hank would be in their 70s. 70s. Yeah. So tell us, what did he c uh, confront? Um, just incredible discrimination, uh, discrimination job-wise in the military, hate crimes, lack of access to health care, um, just a really tough path in a lot of ways. And I think 
the options that exist for younger people socially and medically and culturally didn't exist 40 years ago. And so I think Hank struggled to fully be uh, themselves in the world. Well, you know, that was one of the points that Gloria made, the woman I keep holding up because she's got this great... A cover <laughs> photo. It is great. It's a great picture. Talks about how so many people never made it to 70 because they died with all this burden on their shoulders of drug overdoses or, or suicide or murder. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and one of the things that was really important to us in this project was to not just look at each person's gender identity, but to seek out a diverse group of people in terms of race and socioeconomic class and geographic location and life narrative. And all of these things have such a profound impact on each person's life and they overlap with their trans identity in a different way and trans women of color in our country are particularly uh, face, a, face a particularly high level of discrimination in terms of employment housing access to health care and so the average life expectancy for trans women of color is 35 oh. and so when you see wow. someone like Gloria at 70 being a mentor to younger people, it's really, really significant. Well, I want to leave this in an upbeat um, um, uh, <laughs> position. One of the things I got out of these stories was that uh, so many people talked about the peace they felt when they could finally be themselves, and that was really kind of uplifting to, to read that over and over again. Thank you very Congratulations much for coming in. Congratulations both oh, Thank you so much. Terrific book. Uh, Jess Dugan is a photographer. Vanessa Fabre is a social worker and a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. The book... To survive on this shore, photographs and interviews with transgender and gender nonconforming older adults. Tonight, they're going to be 7 o'clock at the Harvard Bookstore, so you can catch them there and get yourself a book. And congratulations again. Thank you for coming in. Good to meet you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Up next, CNN's John King is here to take on the latest political headlines. John King is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio, live from the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie Egan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us to go over the latest political headlines is CNN's chief national correspondent, John King. John, of course, is the anchor of Inside Politics, which we were just watching, which you can catch weekdays at noon, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Hello there, John King. Happy Tuesday. And to Happy you. Happy Tuesday to you too, John King. Glad it's not last Tuesday. We were all exhausted. <laughs> so, so, John, what is going on with your colleague, Jim Acosta, whose uh, uh, White House press credentials have been taken away? I understand there's a lawsuit. CNN has filed a lawsuit challenging the White House uh, decision to revoke Jim's hard pass, which is it, it's an ID. That hard, you can get into the White House every day. If you don't know the lexicon of hard pass, it's a permanent pass, essentially. I mean, it does expire at some point. You have to renew it. But it's for the permanent White House reporters have what's called a hard pass. Uh, they revoked Jim's, and then uh, he went to Paris to cover the president's trip this weekend, and the White House would not let him into any events the president was at, even though he had credentials from the hosts, meaning the French government. Uh, so it's a suit on First Amendment grounds, essentially saying that they you know, had no legitimate reason to do this. Uh, and uh, the White House says it will contest the lawsuit. And uh, we'll see how this one plays out. So, John, let's go from the White House to another house, uh, the Democratic, soon to be democratically controlled House of Representatives. How much conflict is there between, let's say, the more establishment part of the House Democratic Party that will obviously control key committees and some of the n- new kids in town? I mean, just as an example, when I did a debate between Ayanna Presley and Mike Capuano, the incumbent at that time, uh, 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 
now Congresswoman-elect Presley went out of her way to say she thought the case had been made to impeach the President of the United States, not a position the leadership is taking. Is there internal conflict, or is this going more smoothly than I'm characterizing it as? No, there's no doubt, at least internal tension. Uh, we'll see if it turns into conflict. The message from Nancy Pelosi, who is still trying to make sure she has the votes to be Speaker, uh, from Jerry Nadler, who would be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee uh, in the new Democratic House and therefore would be in charge of any impeachment proceedings which originate in the House, is take a deep breath, let's wait. Um, they see, for example, the reporting in the Wall Street Journal the other day that the president might have been personally involved. Yeah. They have evidence he was personally involved in these Michael Cohen payments mm -hmm. to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Now, that could be campaign finance violations. Those are against the law. Now, you normally don't go to jail for those, but is that an impeachable offense? Jerry Nadler said, maybe. Let's wait. Uh, his, their position is, let's not get out ahead of ourselves. Let's let Robert Mueller finish his investigation. Now, there are questions if the new acting attorney general will let him do that. But the, the Democrats' position is, Let's have these conversations in two, three, four, maybe six months. Let's not say the day after the election we're going to try to impeach the president. Uh, and that's smart politics in that about the Democrats are going to pick up somewhere in the ballpark of 33 to 38 seats. They could get as high as 40, but just think it's 35-plus. 20-plus uh, of those, Jim and Marjorie, are suburban seats that were held by Republicans. So Ayanna Presley's coming into a Democratic seat. She has different politics mm -hmm. than somebody who just won a seat in a suburban district that was held by Republicans for 20 years. Uh, that person has to run for election in two years. If that person starts talking impeach already, they may cause a backlash in their Republican district that is trending and turning Democratic. So th there's a there's a leadership question here, there's a balance question here, there's a priority question here. But the main rationale, and politically it seems like a smart one, is we get you, we hear you, you just got to give us a couple of months. Let Mueller play out first to see if he gives us even more evidence to make this obvious. Uh, by the way, what can the acting attorney general, who thinks that the Russia investigation is a witch hunt, as he said before, uh, uh, what, what can Whitaker do uh, to hamper the investigation in his present capacity? Well, if Robert Mueller walked into his office today and said, I want to indict Marjorie, uh, Matthew Whitaker could say no. I don't see the case. I think you're overstating the evidence. I don't see the case. Now, if he says no, this is where it gets interesting. If Whitaker says no, there is automatically then a report to Congress. You know, the, the attorney general or the power over the special counsel has the authority to say, I'm not letting you hire those five people. I'm not giving you mm -hmm. the budget for that. I don't think, no, no, I don't agree with you. Your evidence isn't strong enough. You cannot prosecute that case or bring that indictment. But if the answer is yes, we don't know about it. When, when he okay. said you can indict, you know, when Rosenstein said you can indict Paul Manafort, you can do this, you can do that, we don't learn about it until it becomes part of the public record. If Matthew Whitaker, the new acting attorney general, says no to Robert Mueller, that does trigger a report to the key congressional committees mm -hmm. where it, there has to be at least a short statement that says Mueller asked for X, was told no. And that would set off a, you know, you know what. So, uh, as we know, the president either knows Matthew Whitaker or he doesn't know Matthew Whitaker, <laughs> one of the two. What's the conventional wisdom in your neck of the woods down there, John King, as to what kind of shelf life this guy has? It at least appears from a couple hundred miles away that he was maybe not vetted as closely as uh, the White House would have liked. Well, the president knows his views on Robert Mueller. That's why the president told Don McGahn to bring him into the administration mm -hmm. in the first place, because he watched him on CNN when, he's, when he was a paid legal contributor here. 
um, saying Mueller was way, you know, had way too broad mm-hmm. of a mandate and was up to stuff he shouldn't be up to. So the president knows. Did his staff not use a simple Internet search engine to understand the depth of that criticism? Uh, I think that's a, a fair question. And, yes, a lot of them did not do basic homework because this administration just doesn't do that, apparently, when it comes to the most sensitive positions in government. Um, however, uh, the, they're digging in now. The president, you know, I don't know him, even though he clearly knows him. Um, the president used to like meeting with Matthew Whitaker because he didn't like to meet with Jeff Sessions because mm-hmm. he despises Jeff Sessions. Right. So Whitaker would take those meetings. The president knows Matthew Whitaker. Um, the question, and now the White House is digging in its heels. Um, you know, will the Democrats try to challenge in court the authority of Matthew Whitaker? Maybe. You might see some of that. Uh, I think the key question is, what does Matthew Whitaker do? Some of this is, might be grossly unfair to Matthew Whitaker. He said some things as a private citizen. He's entitled to that. He has a job now. Uh, and sure, you know, so the question is, now that you've said those things as a public citizen, you have an even higher bar to prove that you're being you know, fair and ethical and following the law and the facts, not your political beliefs. So no question, Matthew Whitaker's past remarks put a giant spotlight on him. Uh, but also the impression that the president sent him in there to be, as one Democratic congressman called it, the assassin of the Mueller investigation, uh, that is the perception among mm-hmm. Democrats, and not just among Democrats, among a lot of the lawyers here in D.C. So let's see. Uh, Whitaker so far has said, I'm not here to rein Bob Mueller in. We're going to know, uh, I suspect by the time we talk next Tuesday, uh, we're going to have an answer of whether Robert Mueller is, you know, still got a full tank of gas or whether somebody siphoned it out. We're talking to John King from CNN. So, John, we're reading that Nancy Pelosi is working hard to keep her uh, speakership uh, when the House comes back in session, yet you have a lot of blowback. I, you know, I don't know what to think about Nancy Pelosi. On the one hand, I know that people say, oh, Seth Moulton, our congressman here, he's led the charge. We don't want her anymore, new leadership, et cetera. On the other hand, you read about her as being incredibly, incredibly effective, not just at money raising, but at getting legislation through like the Affordable Care Act. So um, is she being ridden out of town on a rail because she's 78 or is, uh, is, or what? I would not bet against her, number one. Uh, that's a, that's a tough bet. I wouldn't, if you do want to bet against her, I wouldn't bet more than a dime or a dollar. Um, who's going to run against her? Will Seth Moulton stand up and say, I'm a candidate for speaker, or will he just say, we don't think it should be Nancy Pelosi? Um, so that, number one, the math is not her fa- in her favor right now. Even if there are 18 or 20 people who say they won't vote for her, will, some of them will blank. Uh, a lot of them are facing pressure from the people who helped them raise money in the campaign, saying, hey, Nancy Pelosi just won a huge victory. We just had a suburban rebuke of Donald Trump. The Democrats are going to pick up somewhere just shy of 40 seats in the House of Representatives. We could not have done that with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it's on the wave of women. Yes, we understand your generational concerns, uh, but who do you got? Who do you got? Who do you, think, who do you think should be across from Donald Trump negotiating the border wall, negotiating a DACA deal, uh, talking to him if it comes to this, uh, that we are prepared to present articles of impeachment, or at least we subpoenaed these records from your administration. Your administration has said, no, uh, we are prepared to take you to court, Mr. President, unless you give it. Who do, who do the Democrats have with the stature and the gravitas? That's Nancy Pelosi's question. Um, are these concerns about generational change real? Yes. Are people like Seth Moulton? I don't say this as a criticism. Seth Moulton, Diana Presley, they're ambitious. They're ambitious, and their leadership is a bunch of 70-year-old people who've been there forever, and you want to move up. You want to get promoted. Uh, so some of it's ambition, some of it's ideological, some of it's generational. I don't see anybody who can beat her today. Uh, but let's watch this play out. It's one of the great post-election dramas in Washington. Yeah, by the way, Presley, uh, uh, she was on with me the other night, and her position is still that it's premature. She is not formally uh, 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 taken a position on Pelosi. But, you know, I asked this question of someone yesterday, John, and it may be incredibly naive, but why not do it again? So she needs 218 votes. Assuming she can't get 218 Democrats, I assume the president said half in jest the other day, 
uh, well, if she needs votes, I'll help her out. But not in jest. There are a lot of Republic, well, a lot of Republican and Democratic strategists that think that uh, the the foil that Donald Trump would love having leading into 2020 is Nancy Pelosi. Can you imagine a scenario where she can't get 218 uh, Democratic votes and she becomes Speaker with Republican votes? Is that even no. within? No. Not I, possible. I do not think. I do not think this is a scenario where even one Republican would vote for Nancy Pelosi, even if you raised your hand and said to your voters back home, I'm doing this as a stunt, this is a joke, mm-hmm. this is for politics, you'd still vote for Nancy Pelosi, and the, somebody would run against you in a primary starting the minute you voted. Okay. Um, he voted for Nancy Pelosi. However, Nancy Pelosi doesn't need 218 necessarily. Why? Uh, so if she, she just has to win a majority on the floor. Oh, okay. uh, and so if the Republicans have two something, and let's say she can afford to lose 25 votes, she still wins. Now, she won't want to lose those votes, but if Democrats vote present and don't vote for the Republican, Nancy Pelosi can still win, um, as long as the Democrats don't vote for the Republican. And, and so the Republican doesn't get 218, mm-hmm. um, as long as she gets the majority. However, here's the calculation, and this is why Anna Presley is being pretty smart. So it's premature to say that. She'll have her meeting. She's here for orientation. They'll have their meetings. At some point, Ayanna Presley is, you know, she's not a brand new to politics. She's new to Congress, but she can count. She knows how to do votes. She's had to deal with the good old boys network there in Boston for a long time. If Nancy Pelosi is going to win, do you want to vote no? Would you rather be on the Committee of Ways and Means or the Transportation Committee or a committee where you can do good things for your district? Or would you like to be on the committee that meets in the basement and counts the widgets? Exactly. John, you know what happens? If going to win, a no vote is a, just a risky thing to do for your own effectiveness in Congress. She, will, she remembers. Trust me, she remembers. If you vote against her and she wins, um, you're going to have a lonely, lonely career in Congress. John, were you still in Massachusetts when Markey ran for the first time and his first commercial was, I think, with his desk? He was a state rep. His desk was out in the hall, yeah. and the commercial. Next to the some, boiler, wasn't they can it? tell me where to sit, but they can't tell me how to st- where to stand. Do you remember that from uh-huh. Marky? Yeah, Eddie Mackey. I remember yeah. Eddie Mackey. Well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, John. One other thing about leadership: uh, two of the most important committee chairs are apparently about to be taken by Massachusetts guy Richie Neal from Springfield is going to be the ways likely the Ways and Means chair, and Jim McGovern from the Greater Worcester area is about to be chair of the Rules Committee, which. Almost no one understands the power that that that's a pretty big deal. Is it not both those things? Yes, they are the two uh, two of the best doors in the castle. Let's put it that way. Two of the best rooms in the castle. And so uh, Jim McGovern has a say now over when a bill goes to the floor. Uh, what 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 are the rules of debate? How many amendments will be allowed, uh-huh. if any? Uh, and so uh, you want Jim McGovern on your side, which means Jim McGovern now has a lot of power if he needs to get something for Worcester or for Massachusetts or for some of one of his causes like Central America, like hunger. Um, he now has a ton of extra leverage. And he remembers what it's like to be in the majority, both from his own days, plus when he worked for Joe Moakley right, uh, back in the good old days. Uh, so he remembers what it's like. You get a bigger staff and you have power. Richie Neal uh, is in one of the biggest question marks in Washington right now. That committee has authority under the law to tell the president, show us your tax returns. Mm-hmm. There's one committee in the United States Congress that has the authority to say, Mr. President, we need to see your tax returns, and that is the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, and so uh, if you talk about all these young Democrats looking to get in the president's face, uh, they have an experienced Democrat from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who uh, has the power to do so, and he's indicated he's prepared to use it. He hasn't fully committed yet, uh, but again, that will be uh, – most politicians from Massachusetts are running for president. A couple others will have some other important stuff to do, like uh, Chairman McGovern and Chairman Neal. 
Uh, John King, let's talk a little bit about Florida. Uh, the Senate race down there is very tight. There's a recount, the, the Nelson-Scott race. Um, and the governor's race. And the governor's race, that's right, Gillum, DeSantis. Um, but there's been uh, such hot, heated rhetoric over this and <coughs> claims from Scott about you know, unethical liberals stealing the election and the president has jumped on board that a judge stepped in and said, uh, tamp down the rhetoric. Is, it, are we concerned about this level of rhetoric? Is this catch fire or what's the deal? Catch fire, I shouldn't say that I just, today. I just, look, we've had, this, we've had this conversation before. I just don't think it's healthy. Um, I know of nothing in history that suggests that you're going to find enough votes in a recount to take away Rick Scott's 12,000 vote lead or Ron DeSantis' much bigger lead. Uh, so the Republicans are likely to win these races. So why are they screaming so loudly? Uh, and why are they saying this fraud? Uh, the President of the United States doesn't say, I suspect fraud. He says there has been fraud. Um, he has no evidence of that. The Republican Secretary of State says there's no evidence of that. The state police agency, which reports to the Republican governor, says there's no credible evidence of fraud. So why is the President doing this? Number one, we've been at this for a few years. Rigged system, everybody's out to get me. Millions of illegals voted illegally. Uh, this is the President's calling card. Number two, I don't understand Rick Scott doing it because I assume he's going to be the next senator from the state of Florida just Ron DeSantis, look at Ron DeSantis, who has been criticized you know, by progressives as this Trump acolyte in Congress. He's being quiet. He's being quiet. That's He's saying, point. I don't like this. I don't think it's necessary. You know, he says, I don't think this is necessary, but count the votes. Fine. Let's count the votes, and he's getting ready to be governor. Rick Scott is screaming. Why? I think, in part, the president wants to stoke this, so the Republican base is still engaged in a fight. Because if the Republican base stops fighting and looks at what happened last Tuesday, losing close to 40 House seats, not picking up in the Senate like you thought. The only pickups you're getting are in states you should have won six years ago, North Dakota, Indiana, and Missouri. Should have won those six years ago. So you got them back this time. Good for you. Uh, but those aren't huge surprise victories. Those are Republican states. You lose Nevada and Arizona in the Senate. The Sun Belt is becoming more Democratic. Like I said, you got your butts kicked in the House. Seven new Democratic governors, 330 state legislative seats flip from Democrat to Republican. I mean, from Republican to Democrat. What happened under Obama to the Democrats is now happening to the Republicans under Trump. And if the base starts doing that math, then they might start thinking twice about their president. So he wants them to think there's fraud going on in Florida. Oh, we're talking to John uh, King. Uh, John, could you explain simply to me what Kristen Nielsen at Homeland Security has done to aggravate Trump enough that he apparently is minutes away from firing her? What is her failure? When she snaps her fingers and says, Where's the wall? And snaps her fingers and says, caravan disappear. The wall doesn't pop up and the caravan doesn't disappear. That, that's her failure. Um, the president has unrealistic expectations of what people can do about border security. And so then he reads these statistics, border crossings up, detentions up, family separations up, and he wants to blame somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say this, and he is, you know, look, she's a John Kelly person. And so John Kelly and Kirsten Nielsen had never been um, you know, reflexively part of the Trump inner orbit. And so he views her as suspect, and he thinks these immigration numbers are the result of not trying. Um, I would just remind people, the President of the United States, who now he's lashing out at his cabinet secretary, had a chance last year to get most of his wall funding in a DACA deal with the Democrats and more border security in a DACA deal with the Democrats. He walked away from that deal because his base was furious. Uh, and so, you know, is Kirsten Nielsen perfect? Of course not. Um, is John, but did John Kelly and Kirsten Nielsen actually share the president's hardline views on immigration? The evidence is that they do. 
but she's on the outs. He's, he's mad. Look at the tweets about France today. Uh-huh. Uh, he's mad. He's dark after the election. For, despite his public comments that this was a victory for him, he knows that it wasn't. His life is changing. He's used to being and telling people what to do. Nancy Pelosi's not going to listen to him. Um, and, um, and so he's dark, and he's looking to lash out. And plus, there's, I mean, there's always change after a midterm election. There are always change. But this change is motivated by the president's unhappiness. Uh, the question is, he tries to do these things, to leak these things, to get you to quit. He's not very good at actually firing people. John King, speaking of France, um, Jim and I remarked this morning that the, the president didn't show up at this, uh, this honorary moment at the cemetery uh, in France when he was over there. It was raining, and it was a site where 2,000 uh, Marines ha- had been uh, buried. But I haven't seen much of a Nor push- did he go to Arlington National Cemetery yesterday. That's a very good point. I haven't seen much pushback from veterans. Um, what do you make of that? I'm, I'm watching to see what happens. I know that the brass at the Pentagon is mad about this. The president would not be bothered to get in the motorcade and spend an hour and a half or two in the motorcade when he couldn't helicopter because it was raining. Um, and so, Secret- uh, I'm sorry, General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, General Kelly, now the White House Chief of Staff, uh, two good friends, two Marine generals, uh, said these troops were not going to be forgotten, and they went out and did the wreath laying the president was supposed to do. Uh, I'm told the president regrets this now. Uh, he understands the blowback. It's one of the things he's tweeting about today. Uh, I, I just forgive me. I find it inexcusable. Uh, this is part of his job um, to honor these. He did go to a second American military yeah, cemetery the next day. But this, to me, is proof of his post-election funk, that somebody even cynically couldn't get to him and say, Mr. President, we know you don't want to do this, but these pictures will be great for you. This is good for you. You need to do this. You want to do this. This will be good for you. You could have sold this to him as raw politics. I think it should have been obvious to him as, look, some of the ceremonial duties of the president sometimes can be a little eye-rolling. This one's not eye-rolling. If you've ever been to these cemeteries, American military cemeteries in Europe, I've been there with other presidents around Normandy and the things like that. Uh, they're an amazingly solemn place. And yeah. they're a place that just makes, makes you stop and think about history. Just ma- and, and so here's my question. In small-town America, I know some of my distant cousins were doing this, circulating photos of people in my family, the distant cousins and uncles, you know, great-uncles who served in World War I. In small-town America where these things matter, we tend to sometimes blow them off in the city. Yeah. We're too busy, blah, blah, blah. Um, does it hurt the president with his own people? Because it's just it's, – uh, I know I'm rambling on about this, but this part I just don't get. Some of it, I, you know, you, Trump's different, and some things he does we might, not, you know, we might not do, but he's different. This one I just don't get. He's the American president. It's the 100th anniversary of the Allied victory. Go to the cemetery. Who cares if it's raining? Do your job. Hey, by the way, speaking of small-town America, we were remiss. You were brilliant last Tuesday, oh, by the way, John. Oh, God, you were great. You really were brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, Every single solitary county in the, in the country. Amazing. So uh, we hope you got some sleep, and we'll but talk you know to you next week, John King. You know King. what? what? Just like people complain about you interrupting me too much, Wolf yeah. Bisser interrupted you too much. Ooh. That's in my opinion, I'm John. I'm with you. Let John talk. Don't put him on the spot. He's, he's just, no, 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 no. Wolf's trying to move the conversation along okay. and uh, keep us going. Yeah, and, uh, okay. No, Wolf, I, I love Wolf like a brother. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. Hey, John, it it talk okay. to you next week. Thanks so much for your time. We Thank appreciate you very it. much. John Take King joins you. us every week. He's seen as chief national correspondent, anchor of Inside Politics. Flipping that in there. Those who get interrupted can relate to all this. I can't imagine. What you're talking about? Can't imagine what I'm talking okay, about. Okay, fine. Anyway, John King, you can see him every day at noon, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on CNN, and he is the magic wall guy from last week's election. Coming up, World War One was supposed to be the war to end all wars, but are we feeling its reverberations in 2018? Harvard historian Nancy Kane joins us for that next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. When the U.S. finally joined the war to end all wars, Woodrow Wilson's motivation was to make the world safe for democracy. A hundred years after the war ended, how are we doing? Yeah. We have an administration that attacks the press. The president is calling the Florida recount a fraud. And we're actively disregarding basic human rights at our southern border. And how is the health of democracy beyond the U.S.? Yeah. Joining us for a take on this is Harvard historian <laughs> Nancy Kane. Nancy holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Administration at the Harvard Business School. Her latest book is Forged in Crisis, The Power of Greatest Leadership in Turbulent Times. Hello there, Nancy Kane. Hey there. You know, Nancy Kane, we talked about this a little bit yesterday with uh, Charlie Sennett from the Ground Truth Does yeah. International News. He talked about Kaiser Wilhelm and the, and the similarities between him and, and uh, President Trump. Trump yeah. A lot of people are writing about uh, the, the similarities in previous prior to World War One and right. where we are now. So what are they? So, you know, I think there's a number of important rhymes of history. I, you know, I use that old Mark Twain adage that history doesn't repeat itself precisely, but sometimes it does rhyme. So the, perhaps the most important one is the vulnerability of democracy. I mean, that's really what we're talking about in different ways. We're talking about, you were talking about John King. We're talking about in all kinds of ways. Charlie Sennett, I know, was talking about it as part of the Ground Truth Project. And democracy, like all complicated, you know, codes of behavior and relationships and bonds and obligations that tie people together is not is not you know necessarily completely resilient nothing among men and women is and so it's vulnerable and it's vulnerable in several different ways that rhyme with the ways it was vulnerable both both before the war and after the war one of the really interesting and most tragic ironies of the First World War is that, by the way, the casualty counts, which I went and looked up, were about 37 million people. So of those, 16 million people died, dear listeners, and and a hunk of those, a big hunk of those 16 million, 6 million were civilians, 10 million were members of armed forces, and another 21 million people, to give us 37, were casualties. A lot of those were civilians. So an enormous number of people would die. Talked in Britain about a generation of young men being wiped out. So... One of the saddest ironies of the war to end all wars, right? A war that in its terribleness, the sheer awfulness of it, produces poetry by men like Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, who write about it's too terrible to write about, Um, is that this war wasn't the war to end all wars, and that America was very divided about entering the war. America was very divided after 116,000 Americans died in World War I about something like the League of Nations and America taking, placing a big footprint on the global stage in order to promote democracy and ensure that this was the war to end all wars. At the same time, you had the politics of blame beginning in the aftermath of the war and the rise of people like Adolf Hitler, who served in the First World War and thought it was the most shameful thing that had ever happened by the way, to Germany, and was determined, coming out of the war, that he was going to lead a movement that started figuring out who was really to blame, and he picked on all kinds of people, including Jews, as the causes of the terribleness that came to Germany in the war. So the politics of blame, the divisiveness of America going into the war and coming out of the war around the League of Nations, the rise of strongmen, right, Mussolini in... in, um, in Italy, Hitler in Germany, Franco in Spain. The fear that generated and the change that came to Europe after the war that generated that kind of fear and led people in fear to think, well, if, if they tell my story, then, then sure there are people to blame and let's follow them right to the detriment of democracy. All those things coming out of the war 
are rhymes with our moment right now where it's, yes, it's partly about violence, but it's also about massive technological, demographic, social, climactic change all over the world and those repercussions and the fear that that has generated and the rise of leaders from Duterte in Phil- the Philippines to, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Erdogan in, in, in Turkey, Turkey yeah. Putin, Orban in Hungary. I mean, and now I can't remember. Bear with me. That the, 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 the Brazilian, Brazil. yes. the Brazilian gentleman. Forgive me. Forgive Just me. Just recently elected President Jair Bolsonaro. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So all over the place, we are seeing again the vulnerability of democracy, the rise of, of populism, the search for enemies of the state, and the very quick action to to persecute persecute people the state views of as victims. Why is this, I mean, I, I know that some of it maybe in the United States might be attributed to the divisiveness and, and the Trump presidency, but why is this happening in all these other countries too? I think for very similar reasons it's happening here. That I think it's largely, hugely about all kinds of change. This is an age, as Fareed Zakaria said in a very interesting article from the Post this weekend, bear with me, on this World War One anniversary, I'm sorry, bear with me. We once trusted too much in inevitable progress is the headline. We got World War One. This is from a very recent edition of the Post. You can get it online. He He's, he's saying, look, this is an age of big winners and big losers, right? All we have to do is look at income inequality around the world to see a perfect right, example of that, powerful example. What do people do when suddenly they, they feel like they're falling, they feel like, and they are falling massively behind, or, you know, equally upsetting, they see other groups rising or the demand by other groups to rise. All of that can generate that kind of threat to, an, to a, a system of government that says, let the will of the people make our decisions as opposed to a strong authoritarian, right, and ultimately very unjust leader, which is what we're seeing all over the place. Well, there's a, uh, in the Fareed Zakaria piece, there's a section there about uh, the, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, Macron. who's who's talking about this uh, openly. And by the way, I, I was stunned. I'm not a world traveler, but I did go to visit two of my kids who did the year of, uh, abroad in, in France. I was stunned when I went there about how they would have armed military men outside Jewish schools and Jewish synagogues yeah. and the anti-Semitism you would see sometimes in graffiti and that kind of stuff. I was stunned, too, about their inability to assimilate the um, Muslim immigrants. So th- France is in much worse shape than we are. I lot. think a lot of countries are struggling, right? And again, yeah. of course, we have massive movements of people caused partly by massive you know, in- inequities in e- economic, just basic living possibilities, yeah. right? That caravan isn't about people looking, right, to like up their luxury standard of living. It's for parents saying, we gotta give our kids some kind of chance. So what is Macron's whole, whole deal? What is he talking about? Oh, so about the nationalism thing, or well, what do you he's, mean? he's having this big—he's having sixty world leaders oh, getting together for this Paris Peace Forum uh, to talk about the dangers of rising nationalism Absolutely. and eroding global uh, uh, cooperation. Well, I thought it was a very—I thought it was a great act of statesmanship. I thought it was an act of great statesmanship. He's trying to say, "Look, we all know." He's particularly talking to the G7 right now. He's talking to everyone. We all know that in the United States. Things are vulnerable. We're, you know, no country that cares about the democracy and, is, and is, is worried about the rise of authoritarian strongmen can sit this one out. There, are no, there is no reason to be a bystander here. There is no excuse for any con- country, particularly the United States, being a bystander. The stakes are so very high. That's what Charlie Sennett can see, and so many people who think about the global environment can see it's so very clear. I don't know a historian that isn't losing sleep over this on a regular basis. 
Because as Macron said, let me just read you a, a line. If you, ha- if you haven't Googled his speech that he made this weekend in, as a run-up to this meeting, you really should. It's, it's been translated. It's extraordinary. He says, will the meeting... This is paraphrasing. I'll get to the the actual quote. Will the meeting of world leaders in France, now the quote, be the symbol of a durable peace among nations, or on the contrary, will this be a photograph of a final moment of unity before the world descends into much greater disorder? That's what's at stake. When you say uh, there's not a historian who's uh, not losing sleep, meaning because of the, the... our failure to learn from history? Yes. Is that... Part, that's partly it, because of this, the rhymes that are so similar that, you know, we... The, nation, the, the world's nations cascaded, fell like dominoes into the First World War. There was nothing preordained mm-hmm. about it, right? There was no grand sweeping force that made this inevitable at all. Nor was there no inevitable movement in the part of larger forces toward a peaceful solution to... Let's remember the assassination of the Archduke of Austria-Hungaria in late June 1914 by a Serbian nationalist, right? The black hands in Serbia, largely funded by and supported by strong-arm populist, strong-man populist movements. But there was nothing ever that was going to boom, boom, boom in a month and a half lead to a war that would cost 37 million, million casualties. But it happened. And if you remember, just one tiny side note, my friends, we've talked about this before, John Kennedy had just read The Guns of August, Barbara Tuckman's fictionalized but very historically well-grounded account of the start of World War I right before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And he was so concerned, he and Robert Kennedy, that we were not, the United States was not going to cause a massive descent into nuclear Armageddon just like it happened in World War I, this thoughtless kind of dominoes falling with ego, the egos and, and quickness of world leaders. So there's nothing that leads us to, st- to stability and peace. It depends on democracies to step forward and support other democracies. That's what Macron is calling for. And that's why Macron, right in President Trump's face the other day, derided nationalism when Trump called exactly. himself a nationalist all the because time. Because this is contagious. Yeah. Trump, you know, so let's give you one example, dear listeners. I got this from a Center for Democracy, I'm sorry, a Center for American Progress uh, notation that, that when Bolsonaro in um, in Brazil, Brazil took power. He talks about, you know, considering shooting refugees because because of things that Trump has said. So one leader's right cavalier and reckless right search for victims or enemies or people that aren't making America great again begets extraordinary persecution and 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 terrible action by another. This is a, an energy. And a contagion that people are, that leaders are not, American leaders are not now paying enough attention to. Well, it's a, the, it's, and that's what Macron is c- trying to call people yeah. to heal on this. And the Fareed Zakaria piece talks about this historian, Christopher Clark, who wrote a book called The, the Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers. And Sleep- a, yeah, the statesman of 1914 yep. just stumbled along into this gruesome war without even realizing, as he puts it, the dangers of their isolated uh, Their isolated, single decisions that yes. aggregated accre- became an accretive disaster very quickly. So, by the way, sleepwalking is not a term that's brand new to this historian, right? That's right. a lot of people have talked about the start of World War One and the extraordinary tragedy of it as being a function of leaders who sleptwalk. So, where's the up- so so what's what should we be doing here? What's the upside to this? Well, the upside is 
that Macron is absolutely on, on the important train, if you will. We want to be joining with countries like members of the G7 to promote democracy, to talk about civil liberties and civil rights, to, you know, to keep kind of rededicating ourselves, as Lincoln would say, to the promise of government of the people and by the people and for the people and of its critical importance to world stability, decency, and peace. And we can't, America can't do that alone, and the G7 can't do it without America. And there are other countries that are on the, on the, on the line that need, to be, that need to be nurtured and encouraged. And at the same time, we all need to lock arms and say, Vladimir Putin, you cannot intervene in free elections in other countries. You cannot do that. Right? Because when the, when the cat's away, the mouse play. This is also about credible commitment to what the global order most benefits from, and that is not right, unleashed authoritarian populism. Nancy Kane, thank Nancy, you very thank much. thank you so much. Nancy Kane joins us every week. She holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Her latest book, Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Uh, Nancy, thank you very much. And thank you for listening to another uh, edition of Boston Public Radio. You can find us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes, or it's also at the App Store. Tune in tomorrow for our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, Mueller time expert Juliet Kayyem, Heather Goldstone on the wildfires that decimated California and the link between them and climate disruption or climate change. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tereski, Arjun Singh, our engineer, John the Claw Parker. Our on-site engineer is Miles Smith. I want to thank everybody for the delicious food from the Newsfeed Cafe here at the Boston Public Library. What's on TV, Jim? Uh, a couple of former U.S. attorneys, Don Stern and Carmen Ortiz, are going to talk about the Mueller investigation and your question of John King, what power uh, Matt Whitaker has and as the acting attorney general and what power he's likely to exercise. And then uh, Andres Debuse III has a new book called Gone So Long, which is spectacular. It's first novel in 10 years. He's going to join me tonight to talk about that and some related kinds of things. Sounds fantastic, Jim. I hope so. I'm Marjorie Egan. Uh, I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in today. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a wonderful afternoon. <laughs>